Good evening, everybody. Welcome back once again to the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. Excited to have you. Excited to be back on a Tuesday night. Been a while since we've done the Tuesday thing. I've missed it. Still dealing with the new uh, sound setup, trying to make sure everything works. And uh, not gonna lie, it's still pretty, uh, still pretty jank, y'all. Um, and I got my camera set up too, but I'm not even sure if people care about the camera or not. Um, but it's there. But there are more important things in the the camera setup and the the music and uh, even even Taco Tuesday. As important as Taco Tuesday is for uh, all red-blooded Americans. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about just what has been a crazy year uh, in so many ways. But in one way, in the start of a new global conflict, or what is quickly on its way to becoming a global conflict. And that's this this uh, Russo-Ukrainian war. Um so for those of you who uh, don't know, uh, the anniversary of the start, or at least the military start to the uh, war in Ukraine was this past Friday, I believe. Uh, it would have been Friday the 17th. Uh, one year ago today, Russia invaded Ukraine and the military conflict that has been going on in Ukraine has been going on ever since. And we, we've, we've talked about a bit before on this show. I always get a little nervous before talking about this war because there are so many people who are so much better than me at explaining how we got here, explaining who the relevant parties are, explaining what the motivations of Russia even were for invading and uh, just all the circumstances surrounding it. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of people who are much better than me at this. Aaron Mate comes to mind. Um, but I think it's important for even people who are dum-dums on this subject, like me, to try to, to try to like figure out what's going on from our standpoint, if that makes any sense. Uh, we, when we started this war, you had a lot of Americans who were, uh, in a way that's, you know, like reasonably backing Ukraine, who were, uh, you know, putting the Ukrainian flags in their profiles, who were, saw this as a, a unprovoked and an unjustified war. And there's nothing that I'm going to say here that is going to make people think that, uh, or that should be making people think that Russia invading a sovereign country is good or that this was, uh, that this didn't ultimately end up being like a, a you know, an escalation of things. But uh, the more even the dum-dums like me learn about this and the more uh, I think you really study what's going on here, the more you realize that there are forces in this war outside of Russia and dare I say it, American forces, 
and forces uh, that are being uh, exerted by America's allies, which seem to have continued this war longer than maybe it should have gone, which seem to have pushed Ukraine and Russia into this war when maybe that didn't need to be the case, and which, which seem to be big factors in the continuation of this war as it goes forward. And I want to get into just a little bit of those factors today. Um, so let, let's start with where we're at with this war. Uh, we, on, on one front, some things are better than others. Uh, it seems that American act, anti-war activism is starting to ramp up again. Uh, this past Sunday, the 27th, I'm sorry, uh, it would have been the 19th of February, there was a big rally in Washington, D.C. called the Rage Against the War Machine. Uh, some of you were there, which is awesome. Uh, and it had a bunch of people who were at this rally who were speaking. And they were speaking out against war both generally, but also uh, the continuation of America's uh involvement in foreign wars, including the war in Ukraine. And it's interesting when you look at the speaker list, because it's pretty diverse as far as uh, some of the voices uh, that were speaking. Uh, you have people like Jimmy Dore and Chris Hedges and Roger Waters, you know, people who are more seen as on the left, uh, Max Blumenthal as well. Uh, but then you have people like, you know, Kim Iverson, and Wyatt Reed and uh, Tulsi Gabbard and Ron Paul, who are also speaking at this event. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that, oh, it's really good whenever we have people on both sides doing stuff. But I think that's it. This is good, actually. Uh, it's good that there is enough of an appetite and enough of a motivation for people who are even like, you know, Tulsi Gabbards of the world. Uh, although she's always been pretty anti-war um, in a lot of her stances. But it, it, it's good to have that energy there and to have a presence of people who are fighting back against it. And if you look at the polls of how do Americans feel about the war in Ukraine? And again, there's only so much we can really get from polls, but uh, support of Americans for... America's intervention in Ukraine and the continuation of America in uh, supplying weapons and money to Ukraine, uh, that support has gone down uh, pretty, pretty substantially from the beginning of the war to where we're at now. And uh, where we're at now, it's actually somewhere under, like, I think I saw 48% of people uh, who support uh, America continuing to give aid to Ukraine. And then it was like something like 29% or something who are opposed. And then there are a couple other things, but that's, that's not where it was at the beginning of the war. And I, some of that is good, right? Uh, some of the pressure and anti-war uh, sort of activism that's coming out of this in America is, is good because maybe it means America stops being a participant in this war, but I, I want to read you just the headline and a little bit of this article from NPR uh, by Scott Newman writing for NPR 
from February 19th, 2023. And the title of the article is After a Year of War in Ukraine, All Signs Point to More Misery with No End in Sight. Um, so I'll read a bit of this. Just most people who listen to this show are going to know. Uh, but this is what's being reported from NPR here. So nearly a year since Russian forces rolled into Ukraine, there are no real signs of a way out of the conflict. Neither side appeared or appears primed for an outright military victory and progress at the negotiating table seems just as unlikely. Neither side has released figures lately, but analysts estimate that about 200,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded in the war so far. By comparison, Ukraine has seen some 100,000 killed or wounded in action and 30,000 civilian deaths. Meanwhile, neither Russian leader Vladimir Putin nor Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky show, shows any signs of backing down and abandoning one of the largest military conflicts since the end of World War II. For the civilians caught in the crossfire, that means the bloodshed and suffering brought on by the war has no discernible end. So now you even have, you know, NPR talking about um, how there's no real end in sight here. Uh, we're basically in a quagmire. And it's important to remember a year on that this is not the sort of outcome. Well, put it this way. We weren't always in a quagmire with this war. There were several times, especially earlier on in the war, where Zelensky very much wanted to come to the negotiating table and where Putin very much wanted to come to the negotiating table. And I believe this was back in around maybe April of 2022. There was a uh, Zelensky and Putin had come to terms on a tentative peace agreement. And part of that tentative peace agreement required uh, the United States to, or not, not necessarily the United States, but as part of that tentative uh, peace agreement, uh, Ukraine promised that its uh, allies like the U.S. and uh, some of these NATO countries would make certain guarantees that they would not basically retaliate against Russia. And Boris Johnson, who was then still the prime minister of uh, the UK, came in and nixed the deal, told Zelensky that uh, they wouldn't agree to it. And there's a lot of speculation, and Aaron Maté has talked about this, but, uh, you know, that America was also behind that, was behind this tentative peace agreement that, again, the two countries who are actually at war, um, that they had worked out, and suddenly you have the U.S. and its allies, or the U.K., and what was probably the U.S., getting in between these two countries and their peace agreement and saying, no, we won't accept this. And then what happened from there? Well, things started to escalate more and more. Um, 
if you will recall, uh, there's been a lot of talk lately about the Nordstrom 2 pipeline, which was a pipeline that Russia had built uh, to go along with the Nordstrom 1 pipeline, which runs from Russia to Europe and supplies a lot of our uh, allies in Europe, America's allies in Europe, and a lot of European countries with with cheap gas. And it's a big uh, moneymaker for Russia, which is a petrol state. They make most of their money, almost all of their money, really, from supplying gas to other countries. And when the Nordstrom 2 pipeline was blown up, back, I want to say, let me get the date right on this. Because that's actually pretty important. But I believe it was, it wasn't, February of 22 is when Biden started talking about the Nordstrom 2 pipeline and basically promising that uh, we would, that America would retaliate in the event of uh, Russia, I forget what Biden's exact words were here. Well, how about this? I'll, 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 I'll play the clip of what President Biden was saying about the Nordstrom 2 pipeline uh, at the time before it was actually blown up. So give me just a second here. So this is uh, a clip of Biden. This was in February of 22 uh, of what Biden said would happen or if this was what he had said about what would happen if Russia had would invade Ukraine. Uh, he basically threatened that the Nordstrom 2 would not move forward. So uh, and this was uh, uh, I'll play this clip real quick. That means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again. Then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring it into it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will... Uh, I promise you we'll be able to do that. If Russia invades. Okay, so you heard that. He said if Russia invades Ukraine again, puts tanks over certain parts of their borders, the Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Uh, when asked how would you be able to do that, he says basically we have our ways. Uh, I think I was saying the Nord Stream. It's a Nord Stream, uh, but you all know what I mean. Uh, well, February 8th, of 2023, uh, Seymour Hirsch releases an article uh, on his Substack, which again relies on some anonymous sources, but basically says, uh, and that the United States was actually responsible for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, being sabotaged. Uh, the fact that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was destroyed by an act of sabotage is not in dispute. The only thing that's been in dispute with the Nord Stream 2 is who done it. 
And there were a lot of indications even before Seymour uh, Hirsch published his article. Uh, there were deleted tweets from a Polish politician who was married to a U.S. state official who was thanking the U.S. for the pipeline bombing after it happened. Again, that's circumstantial evidence. That's not uh, definitive in and of itself, but suspicious. Uh, there's Biden comments that you, Biden's comments that you just heard. Uh, the New York Times at the time had called it a mystery. But now Seymour Hirsch, a year later, is saying that uh, in a pretty convincing article on his substack that America took out this Nord Stream 2. And you put this, you, you know, you think about this Nord Stream 2 pipeline being blown up. You think about Boris uh, Johnson interfering with the peace deal that Russia and Ukraine had on the table. And you think about things like, um, you know, the destruction of the Crimean Bridge, when, uh, which Russia was using to get its tanks and everything into Ukraine. Uh, there's been escalation after escalation after escalation. And there's been interference with peace negotiations, with, with any sort of solution, any sort of negotiated solution. And it's gotten to the point now to where, like I said, you have the uh, NPR, and it's not just NPR, but you have news networks, uh, various news outlets who are all saying, look, it's been a year. There's really no end in sight. I mean, a negotiated settlement is probably off the table. And there's multiple reasons for that now, because Putin with an election coming up and with his position in Russia being shaky. And I don't mean shaky as in, I don't think he's at risk of like a coup or anything like that, but uh, he can't pull out of this without a win. And he can't uh, afford to be seen basically as a uh, backing out. You have Zelensky who now uh, is facing continued pressure and continued, uh, well, let's just say the, the opinions in Ukraine and among Ukrainians for accepting a ceasefire with Russia without Russian military defeat uh, basically makes it very difficult for uh, Zelensky to try to go to the table on this. The, the population of Ukraine in a lot of ways has now, according to some of these surveys and some of this reporting, again, uh, this NPR article, USA Today has a really good article out um, about how the U.S. has spent billions on the Ukraine war for aid uh, and how some of that money may be landing in corrupt pockets, and that's by uh, Tom Vandenbroek and Rachel Looker. But a lot of this reporting is saying, look, the sides are too dug in. They're too dug in now. The, the situation that we were in early on in the war, where maybe we could have negotiated something out between the parties, is just not there anymore. And if you need any more indication of that, well, uh, today, two 
people who are very important to this war uh, gave speeches. Uh, one of them was uh, someone you may have heard of called Joe Byron. I believe his name is Joe Byron. And he gave a speech in Poland, in Warsaw, after spending President's Day making a secret trip to Ukraine to show the U.S.'s support for the ongoing war effort there. And in a uh, Associated Press article by Amir uh, Madhani, Zeke Miller, and Chris, uh, I think it's Majorin or Majurian, they go over the speech that Biden gave in Warsaw and they're reporting that President Biden, I'm sorry, President Joe Byron, I got that wrong the first time, it's not Biden, it's actually Byron, uh, on Tuesday warned of hard and bitter days ahead as Russia's invasion of Ukraine nears the one-year mark, but vowed that no matter what, the United States and allies, quote, will not waver, end quote, in supporting the Ukrainians. So th this is kind of what gets me on, on this shit, right? Like, you're not going to waver in supporting the Ukrainians, right? But what? first of all, what do you mean by Ukrainians? Because there's 30,000 at least civilian deaths in Ukraine now for a war that you could have forced into a, a settlement or you at least could have supported the peace deal that was on the table within months of the invasion. So what does it mean to, to like say you're supporting Ukrainians now? What does it mean to have that flag in your bio to some extent? And it's not really like, let's not blame the people who have their flag in the bio. Like we're all dumb. Okay. Like we're all subject to propaganda. We all like feel, you know, like there, there's plenty of that. That's just in people. But when, when it, don't blame them. Blame the people who actually have power over this situation. And people like Joe Byron, who have this kind of power, saying that our support of Ukraine will not waver when we've already spent something like $113 billion there on military and humanitarian aid, which is which is just a wild amount of money. Just to give you some numbers, we, we actually spent in Afghanistan, some of the estimates are a hundred and, or I'm sorry, $899 billion total, which I think is probably an underestimate, but just, just in 20 years in Afghanistan, we paid, we spent $899 billion for the war. We had boots on the ground. We were doing restructuring or we were rebuilding their society or whatever we were doing over there. Still a hundred or $899 billion with the 113 or it's over $100 billion, which we spent in Ukraine in one year, we're already on pace to double that without any boots on the ground. Like over a 20-year period, we're, we're that's an insane amount of money. That would be – I'm right about that, right? What would that be? $100 billion? Yeah, that would be that, – that's crazy. That's, that's a crazy amount of money. And we've already spent it in Ukraine. But I, I want to get back to the – or we're on our way to spending more than that in Ukraine. Um, 
But Joe Biden in this in this speech said so many things about like I'll read some more his actual quotes from the speech after warning about bitter days ahead. In a message to Vladimir Putin, he said, quote, NATO will not be divided and we will not tire, end quote. And then again, uh, one year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kiev. Or I always, I, 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 this is how dumb I am. I, I never know if it's Kiev or Kiev. But this is why it's important to sometimes get a dumb guy's perspective on this shit. Because this is, you know, even having just like a cursory knowledge of what's going on over there is, I think it's pretty wild that we're, we're still over there doing the thing. And thank you, Andrew, for telling me it's both. But so even after being over there, uh, let, me, let me get back to Biden's speech. He says, one year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kiev. I can report Kiev stands strong. Kiev stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free, end quote. And I just want to really hit on the it stands free part. Because if they were free, then they would be free to negotiate their own peace settlements without our interference. If they were free, they would be able to determine at least, we, we wouldn't have been able to just blow up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, if that reporting is correct, right? To, we wouldn't, if they were truly free, then they would be free from us to the extent that America is continuing to instigate this war or not instigate it, but perpetuate it to keep it going. Like, shouldn't they be free from that? Isn't that what freedom really is? Isn't freedom like your, your, your country actually being able to negotiate something without third parties who are, have their own plots getting in the way? But Biden continued, democracies of the world will stand guard over freedom today, tomorrow, and forever. The US, And then says, you know, that we'll, quote, have Ukraine's back, end quote. Um, yikes. Biden, or I'm sorry, Joe Byron continues, uh, Quote, autocrats only understand one word. No, no, no. And you know what's funny? Uh, sounds like we said no to that peace deal. Isn't that, oh, that's, that's pretty fun that that happened. But then Joe Byron continues, no, you will not take my country. No, you will not take my freedom. No, you will not take my future. Fuck you, Putin. Like, it's, 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 it's a joke. It pisses me off when people start making these big speeches for shit like freedom and democracy and sovereignty when we and our political powers are interfering in that. Like, you can't have it both ways. If you want sovereignty, then get out of their affairs. 
But anyway, that's what that's what Joe Biden, Joe Byron was saying today. Um, but there was another person who made a speech regarding this war uh, today, actually. And that person's name was Vladimir Putin. And this, you know, this, this is supposed to be about where we're at one year later after, the, you know, the beginning of this war. And I want to read you part of this article from the Associated Press. Um, and it's just reporting by the Associated Press. So there are times they, they just make these articles so they don't have a specific author that they put in here, but I wish, I wish they did. Um, but the name of this article has been changed. Well, it's been changed a couple of times now. Um, I think yesterday, the name of the article was Putin raises tension on Ukraine, suspends start nuclear pact. But this has been updated. So this is a, a, an older version of the article. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you what it started as originally, okay? And it started as follows. Russian President Vladimir Putin suspended Moscow's participation in the last remaining nuclear arms control pact with the United States, announcing the move Tuesday in a bitter speech where he made clear he would not change his strategy in the war in Ukraine. I like the bitter speech part. Like, okay, we like, it's just like, okay, way to, whatever. It's it, like way to inject your own editorial sort of opinion about what you thought a speech was. But let's continue. In his long delayed State of the Nation address, Putin cast his country and Ukraine as victims of Western double, double dealing and said it was Russia, not Ukraine, fighting for its very existence. Now, I'm not a Putin stan, but when you say Russia and Ukraine here are victims of Western double dealing, what do you think is more true here? What do you, th what do you think is more true? Um, that, or what do you think is a more accurate depiction of what's going on here? And I, I don't want to like influence you too much because I know you're all uh, easily influenceable. You are so subject to peer pressure. If I off if I offered any of you a cigarette, you'd be just fucking addicted immediately. Okay, I know how <laughs> I know how influential my dumb, ignorant guy opinion is of Ukraine here, but. What, what do you think's more accurate that uh, Ukraine and Russia have been victims of Western double dealing or that autocrats only understand one word? I don't know. You know, I, I, I think. I, 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 but I think it's, it's odd that 
you have the guy in Russia who, again, Russia, uh, to me, there's not an excuse for Russia invading Ukraine at this point. There are reasons, but the way they went about it, as soon as you start killing people on the ground, you're killing civilians, you're doing whatever. Um, it's going to be very hard to justify that to me in any situation. And I don't think anyone who is looking at Russia in Ukraine, I, I don't think very many people are going to tell you, like, yeah, they were completely justified in doing it. Although some people have argued this. I don't think that. You're free to think what you want. But I, I, I think it's telling that... We don't have this, like, so much of Biden's speech to me that I've read so far. And to be fair, I haven't listened to the whole thing. I haven't read the whole thing. I haven't uh, been able to fully digest it. So I could be very wrong. But so much of Biden's speech is empty buzzwords. We'll stand by Ukraine. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Uh, No, autocrats only understand one word. No, no, no. And that part to me from Putin's, I guess, speech about Ukrainian or how Ukraine and Russia are are both victims of Western double dealing. At least that to me sounds like more honest. Now the part about like how Russia is fighting for its very existence, you know, it's, it's kind of hard not to see it that way, but I'm getting so far afield. The the reason I really wanted to cover this, this story or, or what Vladimir Putin was saying, you know, he goes on to say, we aren't fighting the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian people have become hostages of the Kiev regime and its Western masters, which have effectively occupied the territory. I mean, that's rich because you're occupying parts of Ukraine, Russia. Let's just be clear about that, too. But, I mean, he's also not entirely wrong there. But the main reason is because of the START nuclear arms control treaty. Okay? Russia, in that speech was suspending Moscow's participation in the last remaining nuclear arms control pact with the United States. So what would that mean? That would mean like, uh, I haven't looked into the entirety of the start nuclear arms control treaty, but as I understand it, part of that is, um, this was like a 2010 treaty, I believe where they put caps on the number of nuclear weapons that, these countries who are part of the treaty could have. And I think it was, I can't even remember if it was between anyone else besides the U S and Russia, but they're basically putting hard caps on how many nukes they're going to have. Um, so for, for Putin to come out and suspend that, he's basically saying, look, we're going to make as many nukes as we think we need. And also we think that we're fighting for, our continued existence as a nation. And also our nuclear codes or, you know, whatever um, laws we govern ourselves by uh, as far as the use of our nukes are very much dependent or very much depend on whether or not we feel we're under an existential threat. And this speech to me makes me feel that Putin actually thinks he's under an existential threat. Oh, God. So, you know, where are we at one year after the invasion? Well, we're where a lot of people said we would be at if the U.S. continued to intervene. Which is 
we haven't gotten peace out of it. There's been more destruction. There's been a continued sort of escalation of uh, death. And also a continued escalation of America's direct involvement with funding this war. And I do want to talk a bit more about the funding itself. Um, but before I do that, just so we're clear, uh, Putin said that he was going to pull out of the START, stop participating in the START Act. Here's what's interesting, though. Russia, after that, said it will respect the caps on nuclear weapons under the new START nuclear arms control treaty with the U.S., so this is even after Vladimir Putin suspended Moscow's participation in the pact. Now you have Russia, the Russian foreign ministry, noting that Russia will respect the caps on nuclear weapons and will continue to exchange information about test launches of ballistic missiles per earlier agreements with the United States. So this is this like Russia going against Putin? I don't think so. I think it's just people are scared shitless that there's going to be a nuclear war and Russia wants to, to the extent that it still can uh, say, Hey, we're, we really don't want to go there. We really don't want that to be the outcome. Um, but at a certain point, you got to think, I mean, I, I guess what, what I'm having a lot of trouble figuring out here is what 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 is America's end game here what is the end game because if it's not a negotiated peace if it's not really an end to the war then what else could it possibly be and i have a hard time thinking it's and i i would love people who know more about this to to call in to tell me what they think but I have a hard time getting past the idea that we kind of do want Putin gone and we kind of do want Russia not like gone as a country, but we want them to bend completely to our will because it's, you know, the, the, a lot of the reason why Putin felt so threatened, at least what the reports are, of from Ukraine and from this continued sort of conflict is, you know, the, the stuff that was going on in the Donbass region. Uh, America was funding sort of military operations there, as I understand it. Uh, the continued threat of westward, uh, or was it eastward NATO expansion? Where, wherever we had, I think it would be eastward NATO expansion. Um, which is continuing to isolate Russia more and more, continuing to cut them off from the rest of the world. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know what the end game here is for America. I really don't. And there's, there's weird, this is where it starts to get like almost, I don't know if it's conspiratorial or, or what, but, you're seeing a lot more reports too of how like America 
you're seeing, I'll put it this way. I'm seeing a lot of these stories now about America, like, it seems to be, like, expecting or, or threatening or, or talking about the threat of a military conflict with China, which is so wild to me because I look at what China's doing, I guess the most aggressive thing that they've done is float a little balloon <laughs> above us. I mean, it's when people talk about military conflicts, it, I'll put it this way. A lot of the articles that I read about China that are, you know, published in a lot of these American uh, news outlets or, or for American audiences seem to be like threatening the looming specter of a potential war with China. But I don't see China really doing anything that would justify a military conflict with us. Like, am I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm just like really dumb here, but when people even are criticizing China, most of the time, besides the Uyghur Muslim uh, thing, which is, you know, bad for sure, but like at least what we know about it and how it's been portrayed is, is bad. Re-education camps, I'm never a big fan of someone calling anything like a re-education camp, right? But w when, when I see people mad at China, it's usually like, oh, they're taking our intellectual property, you know? And that I'm like, well, is that... Is that war worthy? Like the fact that they took your, I don't know, your like your patent for a vaccine, is that worth going to war? And it, uh, the, these articles that are framing China as like, or fr seem to be framing like China, not only as like an, an, an adversary, but like as a potential military enemy are really troubling to me. And it makes me wonder if like the US military industrial complex hasn't gotten to such a point and this fucking diseased mindset that people like Dick Cheney and all these people from before have like had that's carried over into this like uh, America top dog, everyone's out to get us, Russia's out to get us, we have to fight them and go have preemptive strikes before they hit us. It makes me think, like, is that mindset still, like, dominating America in terms of its foreign policy with countries like China? And why would that, why would that be? Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, I, I don't like, I guess I'm so worried about the Ukrainian war, not just because, like, look, it's war. So every time... You have all these people who don't actually have the power to change their circumstances or like to change circumstances on a global scale or to stop their countries from being in war. Great. Now they're in the middle of fucking getting bombed and dying because reasons. And no one could clearly explain what those reasons are besides Russia bad, Russia bad, Russia bad, Russia bad. Russia is just... You know, if you listen to all these reports, Russia is just so diabol diabolically evil and Putin is just so incomprehensibly evil that he just wants to just kill you. That's all. 
He just thinks about it every night and day. He just wants to get up and just start killing everybody. And look, we've had people who are that evil before in history. Don't get me wrong. But like, most of the time, people have other motivations, right? Most of the time, it's a lot more complicated than just like, guy bad, dude bad. But like, that's that seems to be the only justification that we really have here. And when I see... And I guess this will be the last thing I say, and I'll, I'll take some some callers. But, you know, I keep going back to this idea of when you have the option for peace on the table and you've had it early on in the conflict, when you could have stopped stuff, um, why didn't you? Why did you choose instead to interfere with peace? especially when it was the two countries who were involved directly in the war who were trying to get peace. And I, I don't know what the motivations would be there. You know, why try to continue the war? And at a certain, you know, like maybe it just is that the people who are in power in America and in other places is like, um, (laughs) Maybe, maybe they're so, I don't know, their minds are so like, uh, I don't know, like black-pilled on neoconservatism that they just think guy bad and they need to kill him. But, you know, regardless of what you think about what America's motivations are and what the people who want this war to continue in Ukraine are, it's hard for me to uh, look at this and say what we did directly has contributed to the continuation of this war for no reason. I mean, for, for no real reason. And as a uh, Lysol, Tony Romero or Romeo says, all Putin wanted was a Pepsi, just one Pepsi. And Ukraine wouldn't give it to him just a Pepsi. Um, I guess we should all be institutionalized. I'll say this. I think I think the continuation of this war is a suicidal tendency. How about that? I think this is a it is a suicidal tendency. It is it is I don't see a good way out and I don't see a good reason why we got in. But here we are. Um so yeah, like I said I'd love to take some callers, uh, discuss it. And if not, I'll just go over more statistics. We could talk about, um, talk about baseball or whatever it is you want to talk about. Um, (laughs) I could tell you, I know nothing about baseball. I don't know a goddamn thing, but I think, you know, so Phil here in the chat also says that Uh, I believe Ukraine has enormous energy resource potential and the U S would not tolerate it having a stronger relationship with Russia than it would with the West. Russia also would not tolerate it going the other way. And then links to an article, read this article from after the Maidan protests began, but before the coup, the last line. So fucking sad. Uh, Skipping down to the last line. I mean, yeah, I think I definitely think that's, that's one thing, uh, Phil. I think 
the there was also talk, I mean, like when the conflict began, for those who don't know, uh, it wasn't too long after Ukraine in, I think, the Crimean region or in the Crimean Sea, somewhere around there, had discovered a mass amount of natural gas resources in that area underneath underneath the water. And it was an area that I think was under contention already with Russia. And Russia being a petrol state, uh, that depends on petrol, on natural gas, on, 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 on energy, uh, exporting uh, its energy would, would obviously want that and need that. Um, I, I have a very hard time. Maybe I'm like what they call a quote unquote globalist or whatever, but I have a hard time not understanding why countries don't, why they have to be, or why there's so much like this fight over resources when I know you have to provide for your people, you need to have money, you need to have all this, but like how, how we still haven't recognized that we like as a, as a planet should be planning more together, should be working much more in coordination and working on things like distribution of, uh, you know, food of resources. Like we, we have to get past this idea that like we need to, be uh, like causing conflicts with one another when it's pretty clear that like our fates are they're too intertwined at this point right like there should be like a team if there's going to be a team anything there needs to be like a team earth at this point because it's a lot of the the threats the real threats that we're facing now aren't some bad guy country they're the existential threats caused by uh no checks or no coordination in the way that we develop things in this country. You know, there are things like climate change. That's actually potentially an existential threat that requires worldwide coordination, right? I mean, like um, developing cheaper, more abundant energy sources. That seems like a, a worldwide project that can get, uh, that would literally benefit everybody it has the potential to benefit everybody, but I don't, I don't understand why there's no, why people are dragging their feet on that. And also I don't understand the, like, what's do people, does the United States think that Russia wants to dominate the world still? Is there really like, aside from really the United States, is there a country that really like wants to rule the world? I just I don't even see the point in that right now. It's 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 like I don't even why would you even want that? What do you get from that? That seems like a terrible thing to do. I don't know. I don't know, guys. Look, it's it's Maybe I should leave stuff with more hopeful information again, like some more hope. Do we want some of that sweet, sweet hope? Y'all want to smoke some of that hope with me? Let's smoke some of that hope. Uh, I, I do think 
generally, Americans are wising up to being a little more anti-war overall. Maybe it's wishful thinking, but I do think that the Rage Against the War Machine rally was actually um, just the fact that it happened. I think that's pretty neat. I think that's cool. Especially, you know, and some of the people who are here are so wild to me. I think that's good. Like, if there's a politics, look, I know, like, it's it's hard to trust what politicians say and everything. And mo- like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the times, you shouldn't you shouldn't trust what they say. But if the pressure, if if people are starting to see that there is a um, there's a political avenue for them to gain and maintain power by being anti-war, that's good. Because that's a reflection of the populace that no longer has an appetite or a, 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 a desire for these wars to continue. I'll talk a little bit more about what's going on in Ukraine as far as the money that's been sent over there, okay? Because that's that's a pretty, pretty important thing, right? Like how much money we sent over and what that money's doing for us, what it's buying us, what it's getting us. And this is this is a weird thing, okay? Doesn't really seem to be getting us much of anything. People kind of forget, people forgot when the war started that Ukraine and this isn't this isn't a knock on the Ukrainian people or anyone like that. Let me open up my my water real quick, get you some of that. <sighs> Give you some of that tea. But people people forget that Ukraine, before this war started, I mean, Ukraine was already seen as one of the most corrupt governments in, in the world. And that's not just me talking. That was like there's there's different sort of organizations that are kind of like Human Rights Watch, which their whole thing is um, determining the level of like freedom and corruption in governments. And uh, Ukraine was ranked definitely in the bottom half, I think in the bottom like, I want to say like, 30 or 40 countries, which is, they, they were low, which was bad. There was a lot of corruption there already, right? Um, and then the war happened. And Zelensky got in there, and he's still dealing with a lot of the same corruption. It's not like the war totally dissipated all that corruption. In fact, in some ways, it's probably gotten worse. Uh, there was a time, I, I forget, it was like four months ago now, when Zelensky had to like remove a bunch of different cabinet members. And there there were multiple reasons why he was removing a bunch of these politicians. There were some that were for corruption reasons. There was another time when he had passed a law that basically stopped certain kinds of opposition to uh, like publishing anti-war material or anything like that. It, it was a thing, right? But the reason why that corruption that was in Ukraine matters is because uh, when we spent something like $113 billion, which was appropriated by Congress in 2022, uh, and again, we spent $899 billion in Iraq, I'm sorry, in Afghanistan, over 20 years. And this is $113 billion that we've already spent in one year in Ukraine. Uh in military and humanitarian aid, right? But 
we can't account for where a lot of that money is going. This is from an article in the uh, USA Today that I mentioned earlier, which says uh, that the title is U.S. has spent billions on Ukraine war aid. But is that money landing in corrupt pockets? And that's by Tom Vandenbroek and Rachel Looker. And the Pentagon, of that $113 billion, $62.3 billion has come from the Pentagon in 2022. And it's gone to Ukraine for weapons, ammunition, training, logistics, supplies, salaries, and stipends. Uh, And that's according to the Joint Strategic Oversight Plan for Ukraine Response Report. Uh, But the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development spent, uh, well, not them. Let me me just go to what the, the Pentagon's saying. So, This report from the Joint Strategic Oversight Plan for Ukraine Response Report, the Pentagon was, quote, unable to provide end-use monitoring in accordance with DOD, that's Department of Defense, policy in Ukraine. And this is according to a report by the Pentagon's Inspector General. Quote, end-use monitoring includes tracking serial numbers of weapons and ammunition to ensure that they're u- to ensure they're used as intended. Uh, and among the thousands of weapons and millions of rounds of ammunition, the Pentagon has sent more than sixteen hundred portable Stinger a- anti-aircraft missiles. Without ad- adequate safeguards, they could fall into the wrong hands," uh, said uh, Sopko. Uh, who supports the U.S. effort to help Ukraine with its war with Russia. But if those things get diverted, who knows what could happen, is what he said. So that's, I don't know, that's where we're at. That's kind of where we're at right now. Um, I don't know, guys. I think... uh, I wish I had better news with this, but a year in... I think that headline reads it best or or really says it best, which is uh, after a year of war in Ukraine, all signs point to more misery with no end in sight. (sighs) So what should we just talk about dogs or something? What are you guys doing? To, what are you guys doing to distract yourselves? <laughs> right? What What do we even um, do nowadays to distract ourselves? Um, keep Keep I don't know. Keep 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 your spirits up. Um, but Peter's calling in. Uh, Peter, what's going on, man? Welcome to the uh, the show. And actually, you're you're a great person to call in because if I remember correctly, you were actually uh, one of the yeah i did i did so what, what I, did you think it'd be great if you can give us like a, a breakdown of how that went for you and what what you thought about the speakers and the event as a whole uh first of all you know i agree with you we should not be depressed about the whole thing so i'm going to uh to uh, say some uplifting things uh uplifting things uh later so to answer your question first is that I love the rally because uh, uh, you have a four former presidential candidates. 
who are clearly on different spots on the of the political spectrum, and they all uh, came together and uh, let go the differences among themselves. You know, I think they're doing a much better job than most of, of the uh, calling community members because uh, <laughs> I keep getting uh, people's DM about Peter. This person did this to me. It's almost nonstop. I was like, come on, I don't want to get involved. You know, my show yeah. has to be very impartial. I mean, to do my show, I need to be very impartial, right? I know that. So, yeah. So, but so, so four guys, uh, four guys and girls get together. Rampa probably is the most conservative one, right? A lot of people uh, on the left side hates him uh, for, you know, that, for some good reasons. But he was there. He's very supportive. So that it's that's great. I personally don't think the protest is going to make too much of a difference for the reasons that this war is not like a Vietnam war because uh, we do not have boots on the ground. Right. And, well, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. I don't think we will. I think uh, the yeah. Pentagon, the Pentagon, I find out, I found the Pentagon is more cool headed about the whole thing because the Pentagon knows that uh, the, the NATO combined, uh, NATO and the U.S. do not have the enough resources to deal with Russia for, uh, for now. And uh, yeah. it's those uh, diplomats actually is more hawkish, I think. So that's that. And uh, that's yeah, that's interesting. But one thing I do want to mention is um, even without boots on the ground on a per year spending basis, we're outspending what we spent in uh, Afghanistan, where we had oh, yes. yes, which is, which is terrifying yeah. to me. Yes. Um, well, you are a lawyer, but uh, there's a law called the Lincoln's Law. Mm -hmm. which is called the uh, uh, False Claim Act, right? Yeah. So in this country, if you send a fraudulent bill to the to Uncle Sam, to, to the federal government, you will be severely punished under that yeah. False Claim Act, right? But think about yeah. all the foreign aid, right? If Ukraine, the Zelensky say, oh, we, we used up all the high mass <laughs> you send us. Please right, send us right. more. What if it's a, right. a false claim? Are they held accountable? You know, again, Lincoln's law, you know, this false claims uh, act is made initially by Lincoln, not during any time, but during the Civil War. Right. Right. Lincoln was a su supreme, uh, supremely upset that uh, the Union soldiers died because of uh, the 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 the, uh, the guns they're getting is uh, actually does not work, or the gunpowder they're getting actually is uh, not gunpowder at all. Right, 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 right. So, you know, he 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 hates these uh, frosters more than he hates the uh, Confederate armies and all that. So, just think yeah. about what you said: that we spend more in Ukraine than uh, per month or per year as compared to uh, Afghanistan. So, I yeah. find out to be so. So, these are all depressing stuff, and. Uh, the uplifting stuff I'm going to say, which is, has nothing to do with the rallies, that I do believe the the war itself is uh, is has only a military question left. There's no political question unanswered or, or, or not asked yet, uh, because uh, Russia is determined to finish this thing off militarily, and they open the door for negotiation, but they say, uh, they have said the Ukraine can seek a communication channel through a trustworthy 
third party. I think that third party probably is China because uh, there is a delegate now coming, uh, uh, Chinese delegate in Hungary, uh, heading towards Moscow in mm. this in these coming days. Uh, however, I do know Russia is entirely prepared to finish the job militarily, uh, which is uh, for all the wars, ex uh, uh, all, all the uh, foreign wars, I think in the Vietnam War, during the Korea War, uh, the, the, the winners, uh, or, or the, uh, uh, in, in my opinion, you know, especially in the Vietnam War, they are very determined. Ho Chi Minh is determined to win the war militarily. Right. And, uh, and so I think from that perspective, and also all the, uh, news from the battleground that I'm getting is that, uh, Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine is losing. Uh, it's yeah. just a matter of time. Yeah. I've I've seen so uh, as I've seen as far as reports on the ground go, there was a the initial Russian uh, invasion, which at first was going for Russia. Then Ukraine starts backing them up. Then Ukraine for a while was put having uh, offensives, and for a while they seemed to be uh, seriously outperforming what was expected of them, probably in no small part because of the support they were getting from the United States, at least with, with guns and equipment. And now Russia is starting to uh, reverse that and uh, sort of take over the offensive again. But I, I, I think, I think China as a third party uh, sort of mediator here is interesting because I, I could see that going both ways. I think they would be like a really good party to, to actually mediate this. But do you think there's a risk of, I mean, I, I tend to think the United States has been sort of itching to instigate things with China and maybe I'm. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's a great, great question. So first of all, so that uh, Solansky has been begging China to get involved. Because uh, his wife, uh, the first lady of Ukraine, handed a, a letter to the Chinese delegates in in Davos, in the Junior WEF, mm -hmm. literally begging China to intervene. Because uh, both sides, both Russia, especially Ukraine, also knows that China is the only impartial uh, party in between. Because uh, China benefited greatly from both from Ukraine and Russia during the Soviet Union time. So. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, uh, and uh, and I know for sure that China hate to see this is happening. Uh, so so that is why Ukraine has been begging China to be uh, she directly involved because uh, mm. they believe only she has the power and the uh, status to to be meaningful in both sides. So. Uh, this is, but about Taiwan is that I think people are overly concerned about Taiwan and China because uh, Chinese are not stupid, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, <coughs> I do, I don't think there will be a war for Taiwan. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, think, I, I, I don't, I don't uh, think so either. But I do mm -hmm. think here here's what I'm I'm worried about is with the U.S. so uh, trigger happy. Uh, China gets involved, tries to negotiate a peace deal or tries to mediate a situation, and the U.S. looks at that 
and either thinks, oh, they're trying to help Russia and starts a whole pressure campaign there, Mm -hmm. or, um, and this is almost like a, I don't know if this is worse or, or what, but China is successful in brokering some kind of peace or some kind of deal or some kind of agreement. And the, in the eyes of the rest of the world, the U S starts to lose more of its uh, power as like the, the big brother who comes Mm -hmm. in and steps in and controls things. And now China has shown itself as a capable sort of world mediator and a world Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so much of, what seems to be America's paranoia with China is exactly with China taking over and becoming the world's greatest superpower. Yes. And in doing I, that, I, you're you absolutely know, correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually thought of a particular uh, uh, term that could really upset the U.S. Even not the, it may not be Euro- European, but the U.S. will be very upset. If the what term is, is that the Ukraine and Russia, it will be uh, okay with the Chinese uh, PLA, the People's Liberation Army. To station in disputed areas, such as oh, the, that would yeah, that I would be piss yeah. the U.S. Yeah. completely, yeah. right? The U.S. But, would but be just, fucking yeah, pissed. you know. So I'm, uh, I agree with you. So no, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I'm worried about, Peter. Honestly, I'm I'm worried that uh, America has put so much money and control and so much of its foreign policy, even the way we approach foreign policy through the military that it's like a hammer and every problem or potential problem that we see around the world is a fucking nail. So they see that China is on its way to become the world's global superpower. And even though none of that is for reasons of like military supremacy, uh, and a lot of that is America's fault. And um, even if China overtook the United States, it doesn't, like that doesn't create an existential threat to the United States. Exactly. They see China as a nail. Yeah. And they don't want, you know, the bigger the nail gets, the more nervous the hammer gets because they're like, can I actually hammer this fucking nail in? Mm -hmm. Or is this nail going to be too big to hammer? And that's what I, I, you know, I think that's why they're, it's, it's crazy to think that American foreign policy may just be based on like a bunch of paranoia, but I'm having a, I, I don't see like a, like a more legitimate reason or a, a reason that seems to explain some of this, some of the stances that America's taken, especially in this Ukraine, Russia conflict more than, than they just don't like Russia. I know that sounds so stupid to say out loud. Oh, no, I, I, I actually, in my show, I showed uh, everybody repeatedly this map uh, dated in 1826. It's called uh, the Mor- uh, Moral and the Political Chart of the Inhabited World. Uh, Russia is considered uh, uh, the same as the Africans. Uh, in that map, it's, it's color-coded, by the way. Oh, nice. Uh, coffee color is uh, meaning these people are savages. So Russia is in a territory called that they call Tatars. Awesome. Uh, African- All right, Russia. Russia, <laughs> what up, my brother? <laughs> Welcome to the savagery, Russia. Come on, yeah. get down with the cause. Yes, that is true. So it's India and China, Japan are considered half civilized. 
the western part of the United States, remember this 1826, is also savages because of their, like, you know, coffee color, like, like shitty color, whatever you want to call it, okay? And, uh, and that, I think that is the original source because, uh, uh, you know, that's just how the Anglo-Saxon view of the world back then and it's still uh, true today. And, yeah. uh, but I want to talk about good news. <laughs> yeah, good news. Let's go. Remember by the UN, I, I jump on your show and you mentioned that uh, the Brown v. Board of Education is, is decided that way in part because back then, back then the Soviet Union is accusing U.S. of a racial oppression against yeah. Africa. Remember you said that, right? Yeah, yeah. So Chairman Mao has said this. Without the First World War, there will be no Soviet Union. Without the Second World War, there will be no Red China. So yeah. in other words, China literally is uh, rid of all the foreign standing armies Standing army is the term used by the this founding uh, the founding father of this country. So China was able to get rid of all the standing armies, foreign standing armies, after the Second World War. That includes Soviet Union. That includes you know anyone. So good things happen from large conflict. You know if Russia prevail, and you can see how close Russia is with uh, the African countries and all that. There could be a new world order coming out of this, meaning that the West may have to agree that they need to pay back the colonial travesties against those uh, global South countries. Hmm. They will no longer, you know, they, you know, if Russia can single-handedly beat NATO, that includes the United States. That is a tremendous signal that's a tremendous what i say i i don't know how to say it, it will be a paradigm shift event all these uh BRICS countries african countries india mm -hmm. middle eastern countries so basically most muslim countries will say aha uh -huh. after all these so-called the western world the nato is a truly a defeated you know yeah defeatable there. Yeah, yeah yeah so i think that could be a good thing so no, I, think, I think there's been a lot of that that's actually been proven out by uh afghanistan which is why uh you know so many i think u.s officials were so pissed that we pulled out is because they just couldn't take the fact that like after 20 years the taliban is staying they're staying and they're here they're here, they're queer, get over it. You know what I mean? Like it's, they're, they took the country after 20 years of really nothing. So it's, I don't know if America has this, um, I don't know if there's this, uh, if a paradigm shift has already started, which is this idea that prolonged sort of military conflict and the nature of war today, which is so much more based on, uh, you know, skirmishes here and there no broad scale big decisive battles um just mostly you know how much can you just survive and annoy and survive and annoy and drain resources um and that doesn't take as many resources as you know like a, a full-scale sort of invasion or a full-scale war I, I 
I wonder if people have already learned the lesson of like how to beat the United States, I guess. Right. Or how, I wonder if people are less intimidated by these broad scale wars already to, or these large scale wars already to, to sort of begin with. Um, Cause it's not I, exactly like the Taliban was super well funded or that they were, uh, you know, great like warriors or anything like that. They, they were just, they just wouldn't go away. And you do that for long enough in different places. And, 20 years later, you outlast the country that was trying to uh, eradicate you to begin with. And in fact, in some ways, you're stronger now than you've ever been. Yeah, the, to me, the Afghan war, uh, you know, is a, is a knee-jerk reaction uh, because, yeah. uh, uh, because like, they, I mean, some people pretend they learn from Vietnam that... Uh, before you get involved into a war, you kind of want to set what's your goal, right? In Afghan, uh, for the Afghanistan, well, we went there because of uh, Bin Laden. But does it really take like $4 trillion to get one person? I mean, can you just pay $10 billion to get Bin Laden? Would that be good enough? Instead of sending all the forces into a remote uh, uh, con- country, yeah, uh, you know, to do all this shit and which you know we have no interest and no intention to be there forever so one day we have to pull out and uh and uh but uh but this is not afghanistan this is not iraq again that guy uh, this is a russian guy Uh, he's a he's an immigrant from russia he's like me i just he's adorable because he he's this chubby face and a totally white hair and uh, oh. just totally like a polar bear. His uh, handle is a Smoothie X12. And he is very good. He's a military expert. And uh, basically, you know, he keeps saying that this is not your Iraq war. This is not your Vietnam war. This is not your your uh, uh, Iraq war. You're dealing with the Russians. <laughs> and, uh, and these are the armies you never dare to touch. You know, right. this guy, basically this Russian guy said, the serious war America ever involved is the Korea War. <laughs> There's no other war. He yeah. basically said the Vietnam War. You know they are so primitive in their weaponry. You know, you, you know, you literally is a 25 year old try to beat up a five year old, <laughs> and uh, and uh, but he said the Korea War is actually the real war war that the uh, U.S. actually was involved, and that is a draw with the Chinese. And uh, so he said. He basically said, "You, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a done deal uh, that uh, uh, the Russia is going to prevail militarily." And then yeah. he said, "Then we're going to talk about the political settlement." Yeah. I, I, look, I think I think this this idea of, um, you know, there. If you look at Russia's history, uh, for as long as they've gone to wars, uh, and I know like past performance in a war is not you know, indicative of how they're going to go moving forward, but they always do an invasion or not necessarily like an invasion, but they always start losing a lot in the beginning. And they constantly just, they're like, they turn it around just because they just outlast people. It's kind of like, you know, like what I was talking about with the Taliban, but on a large, large, large scale. Right. Um, The, you know, in world war two, when they're pushed all the way back to, uh, I don't know if it was St. Petersburg or if it was um, Stalingrad, 
Um, Mm -hmm. And those might be the same things. I forget which one St. Petersburg is, which one's Leningrad. Stalingrad is Leningrad, I think. Okay. Stalingrad is, I think, I I can be wrong, but I know what you mean. I mean, uh, Napoleon also is getting close to to Moscow too. And, uh, and, uh, you know, because uh, Russia did lose that many people. And uh, this is why I think Imashio had mentioned Mao of China is very like Malcolm X in the U.S. Hmm. Mao is willing to take up thing, uh, take up a uh, sacrifice of human lives. He he's so willing to sacrifice the the, the Soviet Union is shocked. The Soviet hmm. Union actually believe Mao is crazy because Mao offered four hundred million Chinese lives. That's insane. Yeah, that because is insane. think of I yeah, mean, think about wow. these are the Soviet Union. They're listening to Mao say. Well, you know, uh, Soviet Union, they know they lost, say, 26, 27 million people in the Second World War, right? Here comes mm-hmm. Mao after the Second World War. And Mao said, I have another 400 million to sacrifice. I want to fight the U.S. The U.S. is a paper tiger. That's yeah. truly what Mao is thinking. And, uh, and, uh, and so what I'm trying to say is that if you decide to fight a bully, then you need to be prepared. To, yeah. to 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 being inflicted with some very unbearable pain, right? So, yeah. yeah. <sighs> Is there anything else we can give people as far as uh, hope here? Uh, yeah, I think uh, no, I think uh, maybe it's a good thing if uh, Russia uh, eventually prevail militarily, then the U.S. will the, the the entire public in the West will say, "What's this whole thing for?" You know, and no, then I, I, we will have some fundamental change, such as you will have a international version of the False Claim Act. Put the Lincoln Law to the foreign countries hmm. who receive our our aid, right? <laughs> we'll say, and right. uh, and uh, no, I, I I'm pretty upbeat with this because uh, because uh, for the reasons of this, uh, JFK negotiated with uh, Khrushchev. For the Cuban missile crisis, for a very mm-hmm. good reason. These are the people who actually JFK he himself he, is on the uh, served in the Second World War. They know how horrible wars are, and they hope they know how horrible it will be to fight with the Russians. You know, I actually believe JFK is easy going with the, the Vietnam War, uh, but he's you know, because he believed the Vietnamese are so little, they could they can be scared away just by the napalm bombs. But he knows Russians will not be scared, so that's why he he is willing to negotiate. And uh, our leaders today is uh, as dumb as uh, as dumber than the fifth grader, in my opinion. Yeah, pretty dumb. Are, yeah, right now they are, and maybe because they're so dumb, then they will be taught a lesson, a real good lesson. Well, you know, right. but uh, I'll be honest. This is this is how I see it. I see it as if we get to a point to where Ukraine is going to lose the war, I think America is going to step in as directly as possible or push for that. Um, I, I think it's going to, it's almost like the prelude to the Vietnam war. Um, great, great, great suggestion because this is why I think the, all the anti-war rallies, even the one that happened uh, this past Sunday and the one in March, I don't think there will be a lot of people because we have, we don't have a draft yet. <laughs> we do not, yeah. We as soon as 
we're going to have a draft. Then you're going to have a people coming out. Like there's a very little students. I do not see a lot of students there. Guess what? Because back in the during the Vietnam War, when you're about to graduate from high school and the, uh, where you're about to enter into colleges, you'll be drafted. Right. That's why the the the, the protest in Vietnam War is uh, is from all corner of the society. Nobody wants to die, especially die in a very very an insignificant place in the world, which is so far yeah. away from the U.S. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. but that, I mean, it, it's just wild. Like, I I I just have a hard time. Um, I have a really un- hard time like understanding war as a political game. Um, and, and, and by that I mean, you know, the idea that. Um, I guess what I just keep going back to is this idea that the U.S. would get in between other countries trying to have peace. It's almost, it reminds me of like, um, maybe that's not a good analogy, but like, you know, there's, I don't like the idea of people trying to play like chess where the pawns are like civilians, you know? Like, like th- this idea of whatever the U.S.'s machinations are with the continuation of this war, whatever its motivations are, the idea that the cost of the continuation of the war, which is all of these lives, is somehow worth it for whatever their, their machinations are. You know what I mean? And it, it makes yes. it even stranger to me when I can't understand what the fuck they want to get out of it. Like what, what do the, if maybe if they had like a clear, if someone was able to articulate to me a clear, like why the U S needs to be involved in this, why I think, yeah, I think it's the, it's an Anglo-Saxon century old strategies of divide and conquer. It's very similar to uh, instigate uh, 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 in fight, uh, fight, uh, uh, battles between, uh, Native American tribes. It's very similar to instigating, mm. uh, conflict, military conflict in African countries. You know, yeah. think of it. Yeah. The entire, uh, I'm told that the, I learned recently that the entire African continent, their border lines among countries are actually not drawn by the, African yeah. themselves, actually yeah, drawn by to do Europeans, it. right? Yeah. So yeah. here comes another e- example. You you understand? Uh, I'm pretty sure most listeners never heard of this. The word Ukraine means frontier. The the word mm-hmm. Xinjiang, you you heard all in the news in China. Xinjiang means new frontier. So you can imagine Ukraine and Xinjiang are you can consider in in the U.S. term called the territories. Just mm. think about when the U.S. expand into the West in this country; those are territories. These are disputed land among tribes, nation has a some history, ethnic history of ethnic conflict, and these are the fertile. A place for the Anglo-Saxon forces of the world, uh, you know, that, that that still controlled, you know, the West to instigate uh, ethnic uh, killings. So this is why, you know, uh, the Xinjiang story will never go away in the West. 
Uh, and uh, the again, you you because uh, as soon as the Ukraine war uh, broke out, a lot of the Chinese scholars they post their explanation about the history of Ukraine. Again, you know, you you probably heard about it. You know, Ukraine used to be belong part of it. West part, western part used to belongs to Poland, and then some belongs to Romania. It's right. Ukraine itself is never a country by itself. It's always a frontier. It's the border area, gray zone of uh, different countries, different influences. So it's a perfect place to instigate this, and uh, and uh, and that's why you know the the uh, the uh, Western media will continue to do that to Xinjiang, to Ukraine, and uh, you know the good thing is that again, I think Ronald Reagan once said, you know, the U.S. don't rely on other people to like us for peace. We just need to build our country to be strong. Well, the same thing can be said uh, for China and uh, any other developing countries, or including Russia, hmm. that you don't want to be bullied, you have to develop yourself, right? And uh, you need to, like, if, if you want to be bullied in the high school, you probably want to go to the gym to build up some muscles. And uh, Yeah, but it's it's tough if the bully just keeps, like, fucking dunking your head into the toilet. Every time yes. you get to the gym, they're like, yeah. oh, you, you were going to work out here? Yeah, I have this swirly, you know, like giving you a wedgie and shit. And that's I think I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm scared of um, the U.S. continually uh, having this this war first mentality or of again, it goes back to the hammer and the nail, because if you right now are the bully among you're the king of bullies, then Anyone else who starts to try to ramp up, you immediately start seeing it as a challenge to your authority as King Bully, right? And that, yeah. that if your only way to stop that from happening, you know, if other countries are starting to see like, you know, maybe we should hit the gym. If your only way to do it is to try to stop all of them before they bulk up, then, you know, it's everything's going to lead to a fight. And that's, I don't like, like, here's why I really wish America would start doing, honestly, Peter, is while you have all of this money coming in, while, while you are like, in some ways, like economically a top dog, fucking invest hard in internal infrastructure, like just fucking get all this shit going together. Like get, let's start. Start learning that military dominancy as your primary sort of not just national identity, but where all of your money is going is I'm sorry, it's not going to allow you to continue to compete in the world. Like, because the only way you're going to be able to compete is through bombs, is through fighting, is through conflict. And that's not where the future is, because if that's if that's where your future is as a country on a global scale, then you are just marching into the apocalypse one way or another, because eventually you're going to have to try, or you're, you're going to feel that like the only thing you need to fucking do is like, uh, you know, bomb, fight, attack, uh, because you don't have any other op. You haven't given yourself any other options. Like we should be transitioning away from a military dependent economy because the future of the planet, there's no future in, in, of the world that is a future based in uh, wars. It just, 
it will not it does not make sense anymore like the reasons for going to war are not even like they don't even make sense so there needs to be a transition and i, I don't see anyone in america like doing that right now which yeah is wild. yeah yes i don't want to depress you uh but again, uh, I will say from the big picture perspective, I think it's a, I see encouraging signs. I think there could be a new order if uh, Russia can finish job militarily, and then he he uh, uh, Russia will be in a very good uh, position to walk into uh, for a political settlement. I think China will be willing to help, and I think Ukrainians will be w- willing to listen to the to, to the Chinese. Yeah. Uh, however, going back to what you say, uh, your first thing, I feel the same way. I yeah. I post something about Malcolm X today is this because I truly feel is that uh, the uh, uh, the disgruntled uh, general public is uh, is uh, getting too soft that's why uh, the government's will is always going to prevail I will give you an example I'm not asking people to say let's be violent and blah 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 what I'm trying to ask, uh, say is this: Going back to uh, 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 Henry David Thoreau's theory, this uh, mm-hmm. uh, civil disobedience, that he's saying the no, he's against the Mexican War because he believed the Mexican War is for slavery, right? Did but he said, "Did Thoreau come up with civil disobedience? Are you kidding yeah. me? Walden, yeah. Walden, ML- Henry David Thoreau yeah. did. Yeah, I'm a big fan. He, Man, uh, MLK, yeah, and Muhammad Gandhi." Followed this guy's teaching. The row so came up with it. That's yes, wi- or at least name. popularized. Wild. Learn something yeah. new every day. So let Incredible. me let me share with you guys that this is what he's he's not like. A, he is civil di- uh, disobedient, but this is not like a you are totally just uh, being a keyboard warrior right. or beyond calling. No, yeah. he is. He, he said this. He said government is like a machine. If you, f- you want to fight them, you uh, the, the machine is operating using different gears and all that. He literally said, you need to be a stick and then stick it between the gears so the machine will stop. So what do you right, do? So right. the way I look at it is this. If you truly care about the homeless crisis in this country, organize the homeless. Go to D.C. to block the D.C. traffic. Yeah. You, you know, you, you're not killing anyone. You, yeah. you want to cause all kinds of inconvenience there. So that you'll be on TV, so right. you will. So your issue will be you'll be will be heard, right, right? Right. Because if you just be staying in calling, or you just be a keyboard warrior on Facebook, yeah, uh, you know that, it's yeah. not gonna work. You know, it, it, it doesn't do anything. Well, it doesn't disrupt. It doesn't, it doesn't actually disrupt the system from continuing to go uh, to function. And in some ways, it actually mm-hmm. reinforces the system. To the mm-hmm. extent that there's this new media cycle based on keeping you engaged and making you think that you're doing something while still, you know, mm-hmm. trying to sell you UGG boots or whatever the fuck they're they're advertising <laughs> for you, right? Exactly. Like, that's just, the point. So. The example, just this: there used to be Black Panthers, right? There's no mm-hmm. Black Panthers, but there is yeah. a white militant group, uh, white militant groups. Why, why is that? Is it because all the problem facing Black people is already went away? Why the black folks would drop their guns? Maybe it's just, I don't know, white people need more friends. And, know. you know, they're finding community and building these groups. And then they, you know, like, I, I like part of me, and I don't want to get too far off, but like, you know, part of the Proud Boys to me and these groups are like, here are a bunch of people who didn't have fucking friends before. And now they have a group of people. They're feeling some sense of community for the first time. 
and they think that community has to be based around their whiteness. Like you guys know, if you're a proud boy or whatever, and you're listening to this, you know, you're just like, you're just fucking allowed to like hang out with these guys and like watch Disney movies and drink beer. You don't have to like, there doesn't have to be this like facade of what needs to be like America's like whatever machismo, whatever the fuck around it. Like it's, it's weird, but um, anyway, uh, yeah. A bit of a joke, but... Yeah, no, this is good. No, I don't mean to... uh, I know Andrew and Adrian wants to call in, so I'm going to hang up, and uh, if I feel... uh, If I uh, uh, have some thoughts, I'll I'll call back. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, Always a pleasure to hear from you, and, and, like, really, really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Uh, You always give me a lot to think about, so thank you so much for calling in, man. Speaking of people who always give me a lot to think about, uh, Andrew... What's going on, buddy? Welcome back to the Fred Hampton in the Suites. How are you doing? Hey, bud. How's it going? Uh, you know, just another day. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I definitely also enjoyed the conversation you and Peter just had. And there was a couple things I wanted to talk about um, that so, it's kind of bouncing off of your guys' points. I think the first point would be um we need to be preoccupied a lot of the time with building the capabilities for the people of the United States to enforce this um plan that you outlined onto right. the government which is invest immediately in life affirming productive industries in the United States while other countries are still willing to do trade with us. Right. Um, right. And the other, the other thing I was going to say is that um, I definitely agree with Peter that the potential for a more, um, a slightly more equitable world order that allows for non-alignment and allows for independent paths to, um, development. I think that that is definitely a possible outcome of this military and economic conflict that's now centered around Ukraine. Um, I agree. That's definitely a possibility, but I think that uh, even though right now it seems like very likely or at least very potentially hopeful, I think that we should, we should not necessarily count on that to, let Americans off the hook for doing the hard work of changing our country and changing oh, the, the behavior yeah. of the government. Yeah. Um, Cause, and, and I, I think like a lot of times I hear people talking about like, what if we do this plan for an electoral plan right now? And maybe it'll let us off the hook from doing all the, the, the difficult work. <laughs> like maybe we can get it done in one year. Like maybe we can, I'm not going to necessarily stop anybody from trying. Um, But I think like the kind of, and I'm not, uh, Peter, I know you were not saying this. Um, I I understand what you were saying is, is well based in, in, uh, in fact that, you know, this new world order can come about uh, without, even though it's against the wishes of the U S ruling class, but I think there are sometimes people on the the sort of broad left in the United States who talk and they say, well, 
it'd be impossible for us to do X, Y, or Z plan to change the United States because the U.S. is just too strong. It's the imperial core. It's the belly of the beast. It's mm. this, that, and the other thing that means it's impossible. Yeah, the big balls. So, yeah, and it, it's like I think I think it it's aptly named um, American exceptionalism in reverse. Yeah, it's like yeah. the the people who who are not who don't agree with the shit behavior of the U.S. ruling class. Um, they, they, they are not patriotic about it, but I think they do, they do still engage in mental gymnastics around American exceptionalism. So I'll, I'll pause for a second. I wonder what your thoughts are on all this. I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, one, I don't, I, I think what I agree with you the most strongly on is, uh, you know, there's no, there shouldn't be like an, like an argument or like um, put it this way. I, I don't think there should be any excuse for, and not even excuse, but anything said to really try to demotivate or mislead us from the fact that we have to be doing the hard work to some extent, right? Like Americans need to be doing the hard work. I'm not saying this is some, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps bullshit, but it's this idea that we can't, we can't believe this, you know, this hype that somehow our individual like positions or that our actions don't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, you know, like there has to be some recognition that um, applying pressure uh, and I don't know, actually giving a shit about this stuff matters and it can matter. Uh, it doesn't need to be on the biggest scale, but like, don't like, I think we always lose if we, uh, I don't know if there's, if there's some kind of, uh, uh, if we give into this belief or this idea that like, we can't do anything about anything, if that makes sense. Um, and then you know, I think I think I th the way I guess that I stay. It's not necessarily positive, but I think what I've kind of come to, I guess, like one of the things I define my ethos by, is whether or not I could be making, whether or not my like giving a shit about some of this stuff can help make improvements in the lives of people that I can interact with on a day to day. Um, can you make life a little less shitty for one other person? And, you know, that answer is so often. Yes. That, you know, I don't know. The shit tends to keep mattering, you know? Yeah. I totally agree. And I think that also reminds me of another point that Peter was making, um, which is, you know, get serious about trying to help the most oppressed sectors of the society um, yeah. help make their lives a little less shitty and also encourage them to um, to take action. Right. Like remind them your your opinion matters just because people refuse to look you in the eye because you're sitting there homeless and they feel 
guilty about being okay. In fact, perfectly well off in a society that is, um, you know, in a society that allows there to be people homeless and starving, surrounded by wealth, um, you know, that society needs to dehumanize the homeless people to justify it in, right. in mass and in the, in the minds of individual people. Right. And so, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, we, we, we should not downplay the role of conversation. Um, clearly we all don't cause we're here. Sure. Sure. But I, we should, we should, um, we should make it clear, like, what do we think is a good ratio? How should we prioritize communication right. versus actions? <clears throat> and I agree, like, uh, with Peter and you, I agree, like, the, the conversations and the rhetoric can be important and motivating, and that's why we're here. But I think that it needs to ultimately translate into the physical world. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's that's where I come down to like rhetoric's obviously like important in some sense, but I do feel, you know, there are some people who uh, feel like it's useless. I don't think that, but I do think uh, I we're at a time where we need to be planning more direct action. We need to be taking more direct action. I mean, I, I talked about on my last episode this past Sunday, uh, I was talking about East Palestine and you know, this, fucking train derailment that's poisoned their town and now it comes out that you know the testing that was even being done to say that the water was safe was being done by uh and paid for and and organized by Norfolk southern which is the group that caused this accident to begin with they're the people on the the, the train um and you see how norfolk southern doesn't even go to the town hall that they said they were going to saying that they're feared for their personnel's safety you see how uh, they were lobbying for uh, precision railroading. They were lobbying to make crews one person crews. How many of these things have like, you know, how many of their direct actions have ended up destroying uh, the lives of so many people in this town? And, you know, the, the question came up of what do you do for that? And I do think that like, at this point, blocking the rails <laughs> doing stuff like no you don't get to come here anymore y'all fucked up and uh no more trains and i don't mean like you get rid of trains but this i this idea of uh, i put it this way when when i when i hear about the people like not necessarily sabotaging the dakota access pipeline for legal reasons but you know sabotaging the dakota access pipeline like some of this stuff is starting to make more and more sense and it doesn't need to be that extreme, but this idea of stopping the wheels from continuing to turn that kind of level of disruption, civil disobedience, being in the right place to get your ass beat. I think that shit actually, I do think as far as where the scales are right now, they're, there does need to be more of that. And now that we have these, look, we have the ability now with even things like Colin or whatever to know that you're not the only one out there who thinks the way that you think. You're not the only one out there that sees that we're in a really fucked up situation. And you're not the only one out there who cares and who like obsesses over some of these things. So the next step to that is, okay, how do we coordinate? 
how do we how do we take this from just a a conversation where it's like a support circle into a conversation where we've made a plan into an action of how you actually take power back because you know we could talk about homeless people all day every day they're still homeless they're homeless until something directly is done right mm-hmm. stop that and the people who are not here having these conversations i i guess the risk of just keeping in the conversational realm only is a lot of the people who should be having these conversations aren't here because they have power and they don't give a fuck, you know? And that is how do you disrupt their uh, system and their lives in a way that forces them to at least address uh, or acknowledge uh, you and people who are, you know, who are the victims of the system. And it's, you know, in so many ways, I think another thing that really bothers me about Ukraine is once you get to the war territory, there's really, there's very little civilians can do in that situation. You know, what would you do? You form a, a peace line in front of both armies and lock arms and say, you'll have to kill us all. Okay. Like we're in the war zone. This is what happens in war zones. There has not been a war on record where you don't get tons and tons of civilian deaths and collateral damage, as they call it. Collateral damage being literally destroying lives, histories, entire families, entire like the the everything to people is being destroyed, is being crushed. But for what? Yeah, what's up? Sorry, I want to just like. Um focus on a point you made a second ago before like i don't i don't want to i hate to stop you because it's okay i sometimes i need to be stopped andrew somebody stop me somebody stop me (laughs) (laughs) no let's just stop and, and rehash a couple of these so one thing that you said letting people know that they're not alone that they're not necessarily a minority for thinking common sense things like we can easily afford to not have homeless people that we don't right. need to have an economy built on war to be prosperous. Um, you name it. Um, I think that type of work, that is very important. Like, I think a lot of people are not um, very willing or at least likely to be actively engaged in trying to solve big issues because mm-hmm. they think that there's no one else who will join them. And I think that's a big um, motivation to censor uh, on the part of the ruling class. They want to, um, you know, they want to make you feel like there's a clear majority that's against you. The manufacturing mm-hmm. of a perceived majority is actually super important to demobilize people. So that's one reason why I think the rhetorical work is super important. Sure. Uh, As for like, you know, how to get people in the conversation who really need to be there, who are the victims of, or the victimizers uh, of a situation. 
I think I have thoughts on that as well. Like for the people for, and, and it's, it's something that I've repeated a lot, so I don't need to spend too much time, but it's to build resource sovereignty in communities. If the that's, community, that's very true. Yeah. 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 Like if you want to reach people in a meaningful way and get them on board with a really positive community project, you want to reach these people who don't take part in politics you're not going to do it by thinking of a better way to say anything. You need to, you need to um, reach that person through doing, through helping build up their own sovereignty. And then similarly, actually the same process brings the victimizers to the table um, because all of a sudden they have less leverage and the less leverage that they have, the more um, they stand to gain from negotiation or at least conversation. And right. so that enters a, well, a, you know, well, negotiating with psychopaths is a dangerous process. Well, I, I think, I think leverage is an interesting one though, too, because I think um, I agree with what you're saying, but again, part of what makes me nervous about this Ukrainian war in particular is like when your leverage as is the United States leverage is all from basically it's ability just to fuck people up. Um, people creating resource sovereignty uh, creates almost a threat to their leverage, right? To that leverage, because if they don't need to depend on you for resources anymore, if they're kind of becoming more sovereign, more independent, and the tool that you have to go against them is again, that, you know, the big fuck you up button with the military. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, like now I, I don't disagree with you at all. Like we can do a lot of um, that and we should be doing a lot more of that in the States right now. But part of why I'm so, um, I don't know, why I think we need to be building power, like real power more is because if we don't start that transition into becoming less of a military based economy, and becoming, you know, like an economy that could actually thrive based on the amount of talent that we can create in America and the amount of like just building roads, bridges, housing people that like, that's all good. Like that all ends up paying out dividends. Uh, If we don't like start that process and really start that transition soon, I do think that America will find its way into a global conflict. Because that's, again, that's where their leverage is. They don't really have it anywhere else. They have it economically to some extent, but it's, it's, that's what's being threatened. You know what I mean? Yeah, bud. I know what you mean. You're so cool. Damn, bud. You're the best. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Andrew, you're fucking awesome. Yeah. You know, (laughs) bud, I think you're my best friend. Oh, Andrew. Oh, bro, you're, I'm not your best friend too. Uh, <laughs> um, I gotta go. No, I'm just, <laughs> uh, now you're a homie. You're a homie for real, Andrew. Um, for sure. You're, you're a big time homie, but I don't know. Um, what do you, what do you think? Got any parting thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I guess just, I think again, like part of the logic of the force the vote movement and bide i really appreciated that comment that you made the other day you had my back 
when I was talking with Jonathan and, and neoliberal tears about the, um, you know, when we were talking about the, the merits or risks of trying a state level campaign for single payer healthcare or some other big transformative project like that. And you said in the chat, like in response to Jonathan, well, if a healthcare giant or, you know, cabal of healthcare giants all collectively try to topple a state economy as retaliation for having a good healthcare system, wouldn't that kind of strengthen the, the people's resolve? And I agree. I think that that, that logic that was, you know, became very widely used and talked about because of the force the vote movement applies to all these other situations. And so I totally agree with you that the capitalists, the ruling class absolutely have and will continue to use, you know, physical, legal and other means of violence to prevent people from creating resource sovereignty, you know, uh, prevent people from enabling themselves to work less and subsist more without having to um, sell their the, the only thing we have, which is time to a boss. They will fight tooth and nail to keep that leverage. But I think right. that that will that will be the the best evidence that anybody could ever possibly see is for their their like salt of the earth, happy neighbors who are feeding everybody for free or taking care of people's kids and doing a better, you know, better job than any of the uh, very expensive childcare options that there are or whatever, you know, people come up with to save a bit of money here and there. Um, If they see that violently destroyed by the state and there's, there's, it's very clear that there's no way anybody who knows, who's familiar with those people could think that, oh, well, it's okay because it was a provocation so the, the state was justified in destroying them. Hmm. There's no way they could think that um, if they just see with their own eyes what happens. And that will galvanize the public even more to take seriously yeah. the in class. So that's my yeah. part. I, I hope so. It's a good-ass parting shot. I, I, I really hope so, Andrew. Um, but we'll see. Propaganda is a hell of a drug. But it really, at some points, it only goes so far, I think. Um, uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, Adrian, what's on your mind? Oh, yeah? Hello? Hello? hello yeah, I can hello. hear you. Hey, what's going on? Hi. Hey, Bard. Um, always a pleasure uh, listening to you. Very, very insightful, and you often uh, sort of speak to... Uh, Speak to the thoughts. So thanks a lot. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, I get all my talking points directly from the CIA. So um, <laughs> uh, I'm glad it's working. I'll go report back. <laughs> very rich, uh, very rich exchange uh, thus far uh, that I've heard uh, with Peter always, and and um, rich, rich exchange with with Andrew. There, I was sort of struggling to keep up as far as making notes. I wanted to. Uh, you cover so many relevant topics. So, um, again, that's a real, um, um, it's a real resource to, to be able to tap in. So, uh, just a few things. Um, <coughs> pardon me. So I heard, um, 
I wanted to, to comment about um, the um, uh, the digital currency and and the impact that that you in particular think that that's uh, that that's going to have um, sort of on the the populace um, collective and, and if you do think that could be a possible breaking point um, uh, with respect to sort of social order. Um, I heard there um, there was a lot of sort of constructive comments about things that would be effective as opposed right. to uh, and, and things that and by effective, I mean, uh, impactful, um, because, you know, this is this is the USA. You know, they're going to keep the basketball and the baseball and the, uh, and the football and the beer flowing. And, um, you know, we're, and we're moving into the yuppies. And the yuppies inherited um, sort of the power yuppies inherited uh, or got a kick down of um, um, quite a bit of money, um, as, as the numbers tell it. So there's sort of a disincentive in that um, sort of upper, upper um, middle yeah. class, uh, liberal, um, I, I don't even use terms like progressive, but, you know, most of them um i identify themselves as as liberals so yeah i wanted I, I wanted you to um i was interested in your thoughts on that in particular um the the impact of digital currency yeah so my my thing with digital currency um just to give some background is very not super early on but early on like back when like bitcoin was like six hundred dollars and stuff uh I bought like a little bit of Bitcoin at the time. I only had like 40 bucks or whatever. And I made like that ballooned. And I was like, oh, this is great. Uh, digital currency is great. And then all of it was was gone. Uh-huh. So that made me start looking into digital currencies a lot more just to try to figure out what was going on with them. My, my biggest, I, I do think a lot of technology there, um, blockchain sort of direct peer-to-peer transactions can be very useful in getting resources in places to where they otherwise wouldn't be able to get to. So as far as Oh yeah, like sure, great. Funding, but I mean government. I mean I mean the Fed drops one, uh, the the U yeah, US government drops one. And it's the uh it is the currency and there's sort of a of course a yellow light at the very best put on uh, the existing digital currency arena. Um, I'm sure everything will it will become difficult for a lot of these coins to even exist anymore, and the ones right. that do will be yeah, I, sort of I, discouraged. And I think I think that's correct. I think my problem, if you talk to me about like digital currency generally as it exists right now, is uh, the financialization of it, which is just um, whether it's super wealthy investors or institutions or anyone else getting involved in it. It's mm-hmm. pretty much every single digi- digital currency that I've seen has become a financialization tool and one where there is no regulation. So sure. you see a Dangerous. lot more rug pulls. You see a lot more, yeah. uh, you know, like um, pump and it's dumps. Risky. And yeah. and what, what's interesting about it right now is even if you look at something like Bitcoin, I mean, I think I think something like, God, I wish I could find the, the stat for it, but something like 90% or 99% of Bitcoin is uh, 
is like in the top 0.01% of Bitcoin holders. So it's like even mm. worse than. Right. Oh, what, great. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's, it's not spreading the, uh, uh, it doesn't add any more access. It, it is a, it, it's a tool, but of course it's a tool to, to those who already have, um, a host of tools. Right. Right. Um, so that would be that point. And then what, what was the, I'm forgetting what your, the second point, um, God, I'm having trouble remembering it. I'm sorry, Adrian. Yeah, um, no that that was that was it. That was the question. Um, what I, I I wanted you to consider something too as a concept is is yeah. kind of open sourcing this homeless protest idea. I because I've really been chopping it up for a few, and I think it's a good. Um, I I think it 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 has some really interesting elements to it. Um. Because for, you know, a, a pretty fixed price, uh, you think, and I'll just throw a, pe- a few pieces out to you. I mean, but you figure 10 buses, that's 400 people. I mean, I think right. you can get like 44 people on a bus. That's 400 people. So if you throw in a few food sponsors, um, some goodie bags, I mean, mm-hmm. literally, I mean, and like, uh, especially on a hot summer day, like air conditioned buses, um, I I don't think it would. I don't think there would be trouble at all. Um, now, as far as coordinating that, say with uh, community groups that are uh, on the ground that are yeah. um, uh, experienced in uh, in in sort of uh, crowd management in those situations, but I just I just see it as a people resource that's. Um, because, and I think about it the other way, what's the alternative? The alternative is you're trying to ignite, uh, or the movement or, you know, any kind of, uh, social unrest or uproar is trying to ignite a bunch of comfortable and afraid people. Everybody falls in that category, period. Yeah. Uh, especially the yuppies that raised us. And I, I don't necessarily mean our parents. But definitely our, our teachers, our instructors, um, yeah. um, uh, definitely if we went to, to, uh, s- solid schools, um, they really kind of taught us how to carve out some little nook for ourselves, some little cozy space, be able to call it home. I'm from Indiana. I, I live in, uh, St. Petersburg, Florida now, but, um, okay. I'm born Man, and raised really in just- the Midwest, so. <laughs> going to the best, the best of the best. <laughs> yeah. like, no, I, 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 I'm not talking shit about Indiana. I like, I got a lot of family in Indiana, so uh, it's know, fine. I mean, you guys said some, uh, saying something about Thoreau, and I started thinking about Norman Rockwell, and I'm thinking, well, you mm-hmm. know, that's the, that's sort of the same, um, uh, among the same ilk. But, uh, but yeah, I just think um, maybe you know uh, uh, other components, uh, blind spots, or things that I'm not seeing. But I just, you know, there's always money spent for these sort of things. Um, um, and anybody that's serious about doing anything has got to know by now that, you know, gathering with a whole bunch of people, listening to some savvy speakers and, you know, walking up the street, um, wherever you are, uh, is not going to uh, have a kind of transformative impact that I think we, we talk about in these circles. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So I just um, I wanted to kind of throw that out there as a general idea. Um, another thing is, I, I, a question for you is, I wonder if you actually get the sense that uh, the elected officials definitely, you know, um, on Capitol Hill are kind of like fleecing um, the country right now via <laughs> these um, spending packages. Because, yeah, you the, know, the money gets yeah. spent here before it even leaves. It yeah. goes to, you know, General Dynamics and, uh, you know, and, and uh, Lockheed Martin and all right. these. And then when they then just just as it leaves before it, I mean, before it gets to any, any other place, I'm not saying any uh, countries' names um, that, are, that are undergoing special military operations, but before it even gets in the vicinity of those folks, it hits the NGOs which are over there. Mm-hmm. So yep. you're like, you know, what are we talking? Um, uh, uh, Halliburton and um, mm-hmm. uh, Lockheed Mark, or I'm sorry, um, yeah, uh, Boeing and Black, the likes of these. Yeah. Yeah, who is that? Black uh, Black Rock, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Vanguard owns the world. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's and, and and then everybody's everybody's stock value increases, uh, dividends increase. Yeah, and I mean, it's like middle finger to because I don't know of any um, uh, sort of grassroots group that's satisfied with their candidate um that's not i mean sort of de- delusional you know so i mean that covers <laughs> it covers a big span of voters but yeah, well, um, I, I mean it, it depends on how the, the candidate part really depends on how local you want to get right i think i think there are a lot of places locally where they're satisfied with their candidate um but like a national like candidate rep- they're rep- yeah, yeah like, that's what I mean is, is Capitol yeah. Hill. It's like their representative, yeah. their senator. I mean, people yeah. are like, yeah, man, they're doing, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're yeah. carrying well, the torch. Well, every progressive senator and uh, uh, representative has so far continued to vote for funding in Ukraine, which I yeah. like, look, I part of me understands that to some extent. Because it's like, well, were they invaded? Yes. Is there? Do they need us to survive? Yeah, I get it. But like, the thing is, but that's well, that's the thing though. Is that like, were they invaded for reasons? Yes. It's hard to say they weren't. Were they invaded for reasons that our government played a role in? Yes. Were are we perpetuating this? Is this kind of going right into the hands of uh, war profiteers and? Uh, sort of this but, American imperialism and warmongering. Yeah, yes. yeah. So right. You're like, sitting in the school of, like the Kennedy School of Government, as soon as you right. start analyzing it from that perspective. I mean, right. if you right. analyze right. it from homeless people under bridges in D.C., or if, you, if you're talking about Baltimore, you know, right, right across the, um, you know, right across the water from D.C., um, if you're analyzing it that way, then you're like, no way. There is no incentive strong enough to be over there. Uh, when when you um, compare that with the, you know, the the sort of the apparent, the, the, the screaming needs 
of right. of the populace. I mean, it, but right. it, if you're going to say, yeah, we got to do something when something happens somewhere, then of course, yeah, we got to sit around and be like, well, what did Russia do? And what? It, but if you're like, wait a minute, how many we got? Over 800 bases? We got over 1,000 bases? Come on. Right. Are we even talking about this? We're not even talking that's, about this. That's why That's why I think, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, um, and there, there was a lot that you said, too, that I, I, I very much agree with. Um, and, and uh, God, I wish I could respond to every point, but I eventually I have to get out of here. But the, I, I think yeah, cool, the, the, the overall arching theme, if I can get anything across, is that um, the current sort of system of everything being based on the military – everything being based on us keeping a global presence and these military bases and the, the resource allocation as we have it right now is Mm -hmm. just leading to uh, the looting of, of public dollars. Uh, The continuation of, of, of wars places where those wars are unnecessary and interference. They can't stop by they no, can't I think, stop. Well, I don't who, know. Who could stop? I, I think it can. I, I think we have no, to try. Who, who could, though? But I'm we, saying we, who could. Think about it. Who could? Yeah. What politician could? Same thing as the, well, not when the, ones the in uh, power, lockdowns you know? and the vaccines happen. Who right. Who could? Even people who wanted to. Nobody's going to risk. I, I think, but that's why, that's why when I talk about we need to start thinking about actually taking power and why I think, you know, some of these acts of like, hard civil disobedience aren't going to be necessary. This is why, because, because there's no recourse. (laughs) Look, they've had every opportunity to do if if the people in power were going to do it or like put their neck out there and, and change things, then they would have done it. They ask, listen, they ask questions about this and they start Mm -hmm. talking about something else altogether. And I'm talking about white house press briefings, Whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, literally yeah. like, screw yeah. you. Yeah. And, and, but the fact that more and more people are, are realizing that, Adrian, I think is that encourages me. The fact mm. that people, you know, there was a time, if you asked me a couple of years ago, uh, when people would say something like, you know, like five years ago, like right before Trump got into office, <laughs> even though I, 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 at this point, I had already read Chomsky, I already knew mm. the lies of the media. But there was something that made me nervous before about when people would say fake news. Now I feel I feel like that is a good thing. I think it's a good thing that now it's not a good thing if people, you know, they say fake news. And then what they think is like, like, uh, well, you know, giraffes have psychological or psychic powers and can turn you gay, uh, mm. which, you know, wouldn't be the worst thing. <laughs> giraffes, come on over. But um. Uh, <laughs> You know, if if that's like the 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 it, like the challenging of an establishment narrative to begin with is good. I think some people are getting led down different rabbit holes, but that's where we need to come in with information, <laughs> with with better alternatives, with better better ways to sort of explain to people how we got here. That's where a lot of this sort of systemic analysis comes into play. That's where like I find education? a lot of uh, yeah, right. education. I mean, like I, I, <laughs> I, I actually, I, I find a lot of, um, you know, I like, I find that Marx is actually very useful here in sort of dialectical materialism. And I know we don't need mm. to get into, no one needs to know what the fuck that is. Just know that like 
when we're talking about like how current conditions are the result of people's relations to the means of production, which is an easier way to think about it is like people's relation to uh, their control over their work and relation to power and who owns the things that uh, people need to labor on or around to generate wealth and who gets the wealth. Powers, 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 devaluation of labor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the suppression of value. Yeah. Basically the extraction of value value. Right. From right. From labor. Yep. So the necessity and, and, and and that is, I think a good, um, a good way (laughs) to, uh, 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 I don't know. It's it's a better analysis, and it offers more explanations for how we're at where we're at than a lot of other uh, stuff does. Um, sure. But you know, just to to hit on the main point, and then I'll I'll take Stoopy, and then I got to go back to work so they can extract my labor, my sweet <laughs> sweet labor. Um, hey, thanks so much. This is great. yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you for calling, Adrian. Uh, great. But 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 that idea of uh, you know what. The, the people in power are not going to do it. That's why we, all of us here need to be seriously thinking and considering of uh, just considering ideas of what does it mean to take power? How do you do it? How do you start putting yourself in a position to where you're taking power? And it doesn't necessarily mean running for office. It doesn't necessarily mean everything through, through electoralism, but analyzing where, uh, even if we just understand where people in power are deriving their value from and figuring out how do you disrupt that, that's, that's a worthwhile enterprise to be, you know, uh, engaging in. And um, that could take a lot of different forms. It takes a lot of different forms. And, and, but the, the, the point is, that that should be a question on everyone's mind. It shouldn't just be, man, things are so fucked up now. They should be, how do I make things like, how do I make things more difficult for the people who are fucking stuff up? For the powers that are fucking stuff up? How do I make it harder and harder for them to do it? And at a certain point, uh, they can't stop it, you know? Um, they can't stop it, but... Uh, Adrian, thank you so much for calling in, man. I really uh, enjoy talking with you and uh, appreciate everything, uh, all your contributions. Sure. All right, one more. Uno mas, and then I got to go right back to writing a brief of... uh, I cannot wait. I'm writing a motion to dismiss, and my boss looked at the one I wrote today and was like, buddy... You better fix this shit. Uh, so here I am. Okay, well, Stoopy. Hey, hey, bud. <laughs> Welcome to the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. How I'm are you good. doing? I'm good. I'm still working, too. How are you? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it'd be better if we didn't have to work ever again. But, um, I mean, like, paid, or yeah. the work that we were doing. Yeah. Sorry, As what long as saying? we still got paid, yeah. Yeah, I'd like that. Uh, and then maybe we can spend our time doing more, uh, uh, useful stuff. like i don't know yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, uh, I, I know you don't have much time, so I just wanted to push back on a couple of things you said at the beginning. I was hoping Peter or Andrew was going to address them, but neither of them did. So, oh, please. Yes. Um, first thing uh, you were asking about the, or you were mentioning the Uyghur thing in China. And again, uh -huh. I'm not the best person. Probably Peter or Andrew could, could address it uh, more uh accurately than I can, but from what I understand, it's all made up. It's this guy, Adrian Zenz, who works for the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Um, he's a German anthropologist, and he's the one behind the accusations of China mistreating the Uyghurs and perpetrating some kind of a genocide through whatever, erasing their cultural identity and Etc. Etc. Um, but he, it's an anti. Obviously, it's an anti-communist think tank that he works for, and and in sure. general, the U.S. and its various think tanks and uh, and Europe too have been trying to create some kind of a you know cause to to go in and intervene in in China, uh, whether it's through Tibet or the Falun Gong cult um, and. Basically, they ended up sending, I think it was the UN that ended up sending um, one of the, you know, investigators over there. And she found zero, zero evidence of any, any genocide against the Uyghurs. What was happening was that um, the U.S. had had been trying to radicalize them, uh, kind of teaching a, a form of radical Islam that was not at all native uh or traditional to the region. And it was actually a, a bunch of Uyghurs, like 5,000 Uyghurs ended up going to Syria to fight um, because of this U.S. Uh, kind of radicalization. And uh, so that's what the re-education camps, so-called, are for. It was Chinese government trying to undo this, uh, this covert shit that the U.S. was doing over there in, in the Xinjiang region. And... Um, and actually, as opposed to actually committing any kind of genocide, Uyghurs generally, uh, I don't know, I can't, I mean, I, I've never lived in China or visited, but from what I understand, the Uyghurs are an ethnic minority. They were exempt from the one-child policy, so that's like the opposite of the of genocide. Um, uh, my friends in China have told me that the there's even like a kind of affirmative action type thing in school where they get spots in school because they're trying to actually develop that region more and and uh give more opportunities so that whole thing was just made up by these kind of you know samantha power type people to create yeah to create a cause to intervene yeah. um or to smear smear china with these uh accusations and yeah I, go ahead if, uh, just real quick, because I know you have another thing that you want to push back on. Uh, so I, I don't have a doubt that some of these things are definitely being played up or potentially even outright created uh, for the U.S. Uh, to fuel that narrative as well. I, I guess the one thing that I worry about when I hear stuff like that um, is not that, even if that's true, I guess where I become... Uh, skeptical is i don't i don't believe there's any state right now in the world which isn't i don't know like engaged in some form of suppression or something against mm -hmm. its people um so i guess i, I well you 
I guess I don't disagree with anything you've said so far. I don't know all the facts with that. Um, but I do worry about when we look at uh, certain states, and I'm not saying you're doing this yet, but I guess where my where I get skeptical is um, I guess I, I, I it just makes me nervous whenever I feel like um, anyone is idealizing any kind of like state, right. like people who are talking like super big about America's the greatest America's this and that. And I, I think what gives me, I mean, I'll be honest, what gives me skepticism, uh, skepticism is not anything you've said, but just that I know that other people who have said that in the past have been very unwilling to criticize China. And that's made me nervous, if that makes sense. I mean, um, but it's right. unfair to, to you. I definitely, sure. I definitely yeah. do. Uh, Phil can attest to this. I don't know if he's still here, but I definitely do sometimes get on the over overly protective side of countries that the U.S. is sort of uh, trying to start a war with. But I will, I can, ob- yeah, I can, I can criticize China for several things that I'm aware of because I have friends who go back and forth and who you know who are Chinese. Um, and there's other things that I know about. I have plenty to criticize China over, but. Uh, when it comes to, you know, like war uh, accusations that can get us into war and stuff, we're trying to smear, smear the country as like a yeah genocidal regime, that we need regime change, blah, blah, blah. Right. When we had Uyghurs in Guantanamo for like over 10 years and shit like that, like... <laughs> That's the iron. Hey, USA, baby. Yeah, exactly. That's the iron. And, and, and just to say this, the, the woman that uh, I can't remember her name. I'm sorry. I didn't have time to look it up. But she I think she worked for the UN and she went there and she investigated and she fully expected his reports, this Adrian Zenz's reports to be based on anything. She found nothing, mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. And then she was fired by or she was forced to step down by her organization because it was under the thumb of uh, US as usual. So that's just. That's yeah, all I know about that. Uh, um, yeah. And you know they've used they've used well, that same yeah. they've used that same uh, reason to start wars in um, in uh, former Yugoslavia with the the what is yeah. it the Albanian genocide in Kosovo and right. and same in uh, Sudan. Well, well, Albanian genocide. Sorry. Okay. The Albanian genocide is that that's not. Uh, I mean, the Albanian genocide happened though. You're right? thinking like, of the you're thinking of the a... Armenian. Uh, Armenian. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, the Armenian years ago. Ago. No, yeah. the Albanian, the thing about ethnic yeah. Albanians in, in uh, I think, Kosovo and stuff, that was part to, okay. to smear Milosevic as this like war criminal, yeah. blah, 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 and start war, you know, crimes against humanities, trials against them all. It was all just to drum up war. Um, that's just part of the US propaganda machine to justify war that is otherwise just completely illegal uh, and violates all sorts of UN stuff so again i'm not the best person to articulate this i just when these guys jumped in they want to correct me or tell you the (laughs) more accurate truth so yeah um but the other uh, the other thing i wanted to bring up what you were asking uh, why why we're going after china and russia blah 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 i'm sure you've heard of the wolfowitz doctrine or something about the u.s can have no peer or near peer competitors like economic or military. You know what? It's it's funny because in the article, I think by uh, the Seymour Hirsch article, uh, I think I, I thought he mentioned something about the Wolf of, Wolfowitz doctrine, and I think that was the first time that I had heard about it. I don't know if it was 
I don't know if it was this article directly, but when I was reading today, I heard about that doctrine and I, I, I was not familiar with it. Yeah, I could before. be, I don't memorize these things, but that's what I remember it as. It's like the one that says the U.S. can have no peer or near peer competitor, but I could be wrong, but I know it's um, uh, from like the mid nineties and it was a defense um I mean, it was the unofficial name given to the initial version of the defense planning guidance for the 1994 to 1999 fiscal years. And I know that it was also around this time, 96, I think, that they um, they allowed a big portion of the military budget to basically be on on uh, kind of off the books. Off, so like a bunch of like trillions of dollars started going missing from the military budget after this. So, oh, yeah. Shit. And it could have been all to sort of facilitate all that theft that uh, Adrian was talking about them yeah. lining their pockets with uh, public money. But, uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's Wolf's doctrine that, that says that, but there is definitely that, that idea that if anyone comes anywhere near as economically powerful or militarily powerful as the U.S., um, they have to be taken down. And that's why Germany was not allowed. Uh, Germany was developing kind of a near-peer status, at least as far as uh, power in the EU. That's why the U.S. had to cut its uh, its mm. uh, cheap gas from Russia, um, which was like building its uh, industrial or whatever manufacturing base, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But oh, yeah, they can, they can fill you in a, a lot better than I can. Holy shit! Yeah, that's that's pretty wild. I'm, I'm reading the some of the Wikipedia article now. With Dick Cheney took over it and was rewriting big parts of it, the Wolfowitz Doctrine, after it was initially um, released, and then it was lots of its tenets ended up reemerging in the Bush Doctrine. Fuck, man! But what's the point? Like, like, see, like there are doctrines like that, but I don't understand. Like, why, though? Because here it says, our first objective is to prevent the reemergence of a new rival, either on the territory of the so- of the former Soviet Union or elsewhere, that poses a threat on the order of that posed formerly by the Soviet Union. So, I guess... See, it's just about threatening the U.S. empire or the British empire. Why does it threaten it? That's the thing. It's the empire part, right? That would be the oh, only thing that would be under ability, threat. Ability, yeah. Because ability what, to influence other countries. And, and also, like, what the what the fuck? Like, if so, if a country comes up by its own sovereignty and just like ends up being more successful and making a lot of money and be having more influence, then like, what the fuck does that got to do with you? Like, why do you why do you have any say in that? Right. Like, what, that that fair and square. Um. Doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, what's his name? Uh, Brian Berletic has a really great uh, couple of episodes about this, uh, this fear of China becoming, just having on its own, with its own hard work, having become a superpower in the U.S., just basically being like, uh, you know, a middle-aged man who's who's uh, kneecapping a, a young, <laughs> a younger man because he's starting to catch up, you know? Like, it's this very narcissistic, jealous paranoia um, that... that uh, obviously it's like a result of uh being on top right you're always scared that someone will will come up and uh overtake you so yeah what what was the name but first of all let's just be real um the old ass 
like fucked up man who's kneecapping people. Um, that, that just because you kneecap the person who was hotter than you doesn't mean we're going to fuck you. Okay, let's get that like straight. Like the like if you you can only kneecap. I don't care if you kneecap every other person, every other eligible bachelor in the world, America. Like no, it's not happening. Like um. But that being said, like what what was the guy's name that you mentioned? Brian Burzett. Brian Burletic. He has the sh- uh, his show is called The New Atlas, or his channel on uh, YouTube is called The New Atlas. Brian Burletic. Okay. Yeah, I think New he's Atlas. a former okay, U.S. Well. Marine, and now he lives in uh, I think Thailand, and um, he he covers a lot of that NGO like uh, soft power stuff that the U.S. does in around the world, but especially in Asia. Um, which is why, like Thailand, Thailand banned a lot of NGOs because they were trying to sort of foment, uh, you know, student uprisings yeah. and the usual shit. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Man, this guy has a perfectly bald head. My <laughs> yeah. goodness, it is. Ah, look at that perfect perfection. Okay, <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, then I'll I I might check him out too. I got to check out a lot of a lot of stuff. Still have a lot to learn, but um. Um, I appreciate the pushback too. Um, so yeah. that's great. No worries. Uh, I used to believe all this shit. Actually, I used to be, I used to totally like read Samantha power and I thought she was, you know, correct. That's how I was like educating myself about the world. And you know, yeah. if I could, if I could take back those 10 years of my life, I would, but I can save you maybe some of it. You know what? But you're, you're who you are today because of those 10 years, yeah. right? Like I, I needed a little bit of that neoliberal flavor <laughs> to, to get me, uh, yeah. By the way, neo liberal liberal flavor. Um, it's just unseasoned. <laughs> it's completely unseasoned. There's absolutely no sauce to it. It is yeah. uh, no salt, no pepper. It's just bland. It's just boiled yeah. chicken. Um, but yeah, I, I, I I'll, I'll check some of this out. Um, any other parting shots? I I feel like ugh, I Andrew and Peter. If you both can keep it super quick, I'm sure they will. No, no, um, no parting. But I feel like. No yeah, parting I'll, shots. I'll okay. Enough time, um, no, you were great um, and uh, very necessary. So thank you for calling in, stupid. Thanks. Good talk. It. Yeah, pleasure. Okay, here we go. Quick ones, Andrew. What's up? Hey, Bide. Sorry, I'm next to a fan, so it's going to be kind of loud. Or maybe I can turn it off for a minute. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I was just going to say to Stoopy's point. Um, yeah. The. The claims that have been made numerous times about the Uyghur genocide um, are built on mostly the work of Adrian Zenz. And then there's a whole, like, self-referential um, work cited that people will use to try and say there's a genocide. And they're all, all of the, the sources are, are, you know, they're citing each other. And, Holy uh, shit. The, the thing I was going to say just really quickly is, like... Holy shit, dude. I think that the... The little corridor of Afghanistan that touches China and also the, uh, the mineral wealth in Afghanistan, as well as its, its relationship to and, and border with Iran are the main like geostrategic regions the U.S. wanted to be there besides just we can make money off of, you know, selling a war here for 20 years. Hmm. And yeah, the, um, the eastern region of China was heavily destabilized by this East Turkestan independence movement. They've since changed their name because they got enough bad heat in the international press. But these were the people who, I don't know if you ever heard about them doing like mass stabbings in 
um, Western China, that's these people. And uh, so, you know, I think like, I agree with you. It does get annoying when some people lionize states, but at the same time, I think that um, I, I tend to take Stoopy's position, which is like, I'll kind of over defend whoever is the, the current target of us Imperial military colonial um, designs. And, um, you know, with China in particular, the achievements of China since 49 are really unmatched by any other country ever at all, especially one that was just previously, um, you know, ruthlessly, brutally colonized. And if I'm not mistaken, suffered by far the most uh, deaths of any country in the world during World War II. Yeah. So, like, my my thing is, like, there's... Jesus, especially, really? Yeah. China, China and then India were the, the first two, um, you know, number one and number two on the deaths and casualties list. Um, and then it was the Soviet Union was number three. So, anyways, that's kind of besides the point, but it's like, I think that in, in the context of a conversation about, um, you know, is there or is there not a genocide in China? Um, is there or is there not uh, a real case to support Taiwan's full independence from China? Um, in, that, in the context of that conversation, there literally is not a need to criticize China, especially when we're inside the United States. At that point, mm-hmm. I think the... the the whole responsibility is to avert war and debunk the arguments for war. Um, so, yeah, I don't have too much yeah. more to say than that, other than to just, I think it's important to remember that there were real geostrategic reasons to be in Afghanistan. And I think, like, interrupting the the Chinese desire for Central Asian economic integration, as well as the, the mineral resources, as well as the ability to use Afghanistan as a springboard to destabilize Iran and China is that's a, that's a major, um, you know, that's a major tool that the U S has been able to use for a number of years now. So if people are curious about like, well, who's China, even, you know, are they making up enemies in Western China? Just look up the ETIM, the East Turkestan independence movement, and you'll be able to find out more. Awesome. 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 Thank you, Andrew. Um, man, always surprised by how much people know on here and peter uh final thoughts yeah i'll be real quick because you have a motion to dismiss the work off yeah <laughs> so i'll be real quick uh, i was sent to re-education program after the tiananmen square because uh before i take on a teaching position in the uh, in shanghai jiaotong university uh re-education just means that they want to want you to you know uh change your behavior a little bit for whatever political uh, opinions you have voiced and all that. So that is a real thing, uh, you know, and uh, I'm not, uh, I'm critical of that. The, then when I come back from this re oh, by the way, the re-education program, uh, the punishment for me is to be sent to a countryside of uh, Shanghai and uh, teach elementary school students uh, English. And actually that experience is pretty good for me because uh, I realized the, importance of education opportunity for any children because i just find out there's so many highly intelligent children in the countryside but they don't have the good teacher to teach them 
That's why, yeah. you know, I believe the, the, the opportunity was wasted. You know, compare that to the what separate but equal doctrine did to the African-Americans. You know, yeah. you, you, are, you are definitely generation, intergenerationally, you know, damaged. You know, it, it's, it's a, so I, I totally appreciate that. After I came back from the re-education program, I actually taught a, uh, I was the home teacher of a college freshman and woman. They're all from Xinjiang territory. They are mix of ethnic groups. It's not just Uyghurs. There's a, I don't even remember names, but there's so many just different. They are very, very diverse ethnic groups. That mm -hmm. is when I realized, oh boy, there's a lot of Chinese who are, look just like white people. They are not, they don't look like me at all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. but, you know, but, but of course, I'm their home teacher. So I have to show them around in Shanghai, how, you know, take care of their, some of the living uh, arrangement and all that. So, so uh, the, I think the last thing I want to mention is this. Oh, actually, two more things. China and Russia share the same concerns. This, there's hmm. a lot, there are a lot of Russians living in those, uh, Kazakhstan, all the Stan countries. Just imagine the yeah. Soviet Union, they will send their experts, their, their families to these poor right. regions, right? To build up right. Soviet Union, right? Generation after generation, they, they decide to settle down there, right? So you have Russians living in Ukraine, in Ukraine, Kazakhstan, all those places. The fall of the Soviet Union caused some of the people move back to Russia, but some decide to stay where they were, they are. So in the Ukrainian situation is this. Now these Russians are target of ethnic hatred. Hmm. Same thing happened in Xinjiang. There's a lot of Han Chinese. Han is the majority of the ethnicity in China. Was sent to Xinjiang to build up the territory for a lot of strategic reasons. That's all, again, going back to Mao's idea. So they settled down in Xinjiang. And so they, you have a lot of Han people there too. So the problem is that this caused some, what I say, ethnic hatred. So there's some conflict and all that. So you will see some of I the see. knife incident and all that, right? So see, that, of course, you know, so that is not uh, being tolerated by the Chinese government. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, Stu is correct. The so-called uh, forced abortion policy in China only apply to uh, to the uh, eastern part of the country. It does not apply to Tibet, does not uh, apply to Xinjiang, and it does not apply to most of the ethnic minorities. It's mm -hmm. only the Han, the majority ethnic group, is subject to forced labor, uh, forced uh, abortion policy. So you cannot say that the, the Han people, which you can consider Han people like white people in America, that would yeah. intentionally want to uh, exterminate a particular ethnic group. So last thing I want to mention is this. The Uyghurs, by by their DNA, by their ethnicity, they are very closely related to people in Turkey and uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Hmm. Isn't that hilarious? These two countries never say <laughs> they are very concerned about Xinjiang. Is the white people in America truly care about the Muslims in China? Peter. <laughs> Sorry, we care about everyone around the world. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Peter, Peter, those little black babies in um, fucking Taiwan or wherever the fuck black people are from, uh, we we care. We care because 
because there's a lot of oil there. And what are they going to do with all that fucking oil, Peter? I know. What are they going to do with it? We need to help them by extracting it and taking it back to America. Yeah, that's 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 the America's care. Yeah, they 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 only give a fuck when they have an ulterior motive. I mean, there's yeah. it's 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 unfortunate, but that's I mean, if you look at all of our foreign policy for a while, um, we only give a fuck when it's time to give a fuck, or you know, it's people actually look like them. I don't know. That like like the the Ukraine thing was always a little weird, right? When people are saying all oh, these blue eyed, blonde haired babies that are being taken out of, you know, or feeling the effects of war. That was a little weird when people were like, I don't know, uh, feeling that or, or saying that kind of shit on TV. But um, yes, I know that, that is actually the exposure of these, uh, I call it the white ethism, meaning that white people is, has the, always had the moral superior, supremacy against any other races. So I was like, no, it doesn't work that way. I don't think so. So, yeah, so, yeah, so. and you know that's so, yeah, it is yeah. what it is, I suppose. Thank you, but, but just you know, keep keep your heads high, okay? Don't don't get depressed. I think we're heading towards the right direction, in my opinion. Me too, me too, Peter. I'm not. I and I promise I'm not. Uh, I'm not depressed. I'm actually pretty hopeful because uh, at least I'm not the only one thinking about these things and uh, speaking into a void. You know, at least there are people who are. Who who give a fuck? Who it's important, and uh, who actually do care about those those black babies in other countries, and uh, just people in general, and and want to see people free. So uh, oh, that's oh, cool. By the way, oh, just real quick, uh, I know you have to go. I actually saw David Chappelle visiting Africa. Uh, Interesting. Ghana. And wow, YouTube, yeah. it's on YouTube. I just saw it uh, earlier today. And uh, it, yeah. I, because, uh, again, because I read about Malcolm X's anniversary of uh, his assassination, and yeah. I realized that actually David Chappelle is in Africa, visiting Ghana. He, he's talk, he, he, he has his own entourage with some other famous uh, uh, people. So it's on YouTube yeah. if you, you, if you Yeah, Google check it out. YouTube. Check it out. Yeah. I bet he'll like Ghana. Ghana's cool. I'm, yeah. I'm sure he'll like Ghana. So uh, thank you again, Peter, and everyone else. Thank you all so much. Thank you. you um, fun show, everybody. Uh, as fun as we can have a show be about uh, a year in a war, which we, you know, should be over uh, and has gone too far. Uh, if there's anything I can leave you with, I suppose it's that uh, let's leave with some hope. Let's get a little bit of that. Let's smoke on some of that hope today, baby. And that's that. Uh, People are starting to see, you know, after coming out of Afghanistan and Iraq, they're starting to wake up to the fact that America has a tendency to want things, these wars to continue. And they're being a lot more skeptical, I think, of some of these narratives. Uh, Keep that skepticism up. Look, if there was a justified war, there's a real justified war, then I think skepticism would be good, too. Because then when they justify it, we could be like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, like if people can't a- answer questions as to why this continuation of this war is a good thing and they instead they deflect and call you a Putin puppet or whatever the fuck they call people now. Uh, that's a tell. You know, that's a tell that they don't actually know the reasons. Right. Um, but we have to keep pressing them to give us reasons because. 
these uh, decisions that they're making are materially affecting the lives of people who can't make that decision to go to war, who can't make the decision, who, who are getting all of the uh, uh, detrimental effects of war, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the heartache, everything that comes with it, the devastation, and they are in no position to make the decision or the call themselves as to stopping that. So it becomes incumbent, not just on us, but on people everywhere to force the powers that be, the, the people who have the power to make these decisions, to force them to justify it. It shouldn't be that hard. If we have justifiable reasons for continuing this war, if we have justifiable reasons for stopping peace negotiations when the two countries who were at war were ready to settle for peace, if we, uh, you know, if there are justifiable reasons for any of the bullshit that they do, make these motherfuckers justify it. That's all. And right now, um, as a former neoliberal who, uh, if you bite certain parts of me, I still do taste like boiled chicken. Uh, I don't see a justification yet. I'm having a hard time finding real justifications. And if I can't find them, me, with my boiled chicken ass, <laughs> they might not be there. Um, they really might not be there. And uh, I think that's enough. Don't give up hope. Uh, you guys are great. Uh, every one of you uh, is uh, good looking. <laughs> so uh, go go forth and uh, uh, you know just keep keep the keep the fight alive, keep the faith alive. Uh, and everyone, I don't understand why everyone's profile pictures get hotter and hotter every day. I think our collectively talking about these things is making all of us hotter. So if nothing else. Look, if you, you don't need any other reason, uh, keep the struggle up and because we're getting hotter. We are collectively becoming more and more fuckable, which is, I mean, what, what else can you ask for? <laughs> That's so dumb. All right, everyone. Take it easy. All right, bye.